What's up, Kenton? Uh, just wanted to comment, just listen to your recent podcast. My name is Matthew from Amanalo, Oahu. Mostly fish, just to drink beer at the beach. But um, something you said on this podcast really stood out is that how you take pride in the fish, no matter what the size is. Um, that, that says a lot about your character and what you choose to do. And you're absolutely right that that 10-pound fish may be like a, a prize meal to a local a local gentleman or family. So just that whole notion of just taking pride in what you do. I'm sure just that one statement you said about that specific fact probably generalizes to your overall beliefs in all that you do. Uh, just take pride in what you do. And that all that small fish to be just as valuable to uh, a local as a uh, extremely prized tuna is to some fancy restaurant. So Mahalo. All right. Welcome back to the Vicious Cycle podcast, Whiskey, Women, and Water. It has been far too long, and I apologize, but uh, I've had quite a bit of stuff happen in my life, and uh, I won't make a bunch of excuses, but this has been long overdue. So um, my guest today is a friend of mine, and also a gentleman that I already had in the studio one time, and I kind of frapped it on his recording, and uh, he was super patient with me. He, he, he took the time to wait around, wait around, and he was supposed to be my first live stream guest, and then I... I just fuck it up like over and over again. I just could not get it working. And then we did an audio recording and it was pretty good, but he, this is someone that I wanted on this show for a long time. So I wanted to make sure I really got it. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Will. Hey, Will, oh. welcome back. How are you? Oh, I'm glad that things seem to be up and going. So um, you'll have to pardon me if I ask you some of the questions over again, no uh, because you know nobody heard them last time. Right. and. I was going to dig through some of the audio, but honestly, the audio, this stuff is just going to be so much higher quality. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, why don't uh, you, you tell the folks at home? Well, how did we find you here today? How did you find yourself? In Hawaii. In Hawaii. Yeah, please. Well, uh, I grew up in Maryland and um, was an avid water person, loved the water, spent a lot of time on Chesapeake Bay and... Ocean City, Maryland in the summers, and <clears throat> loved the fish, loved boats, loved boats ever since I was a child, just a little child in the bathtub with a boat, right? I mean, boats always intrigued me. In elementary school, instead of doing a test, a math test on Friday, I would be drawing pictures of boats, and the teacher would come by to collect the test papers and say, how come you didn't do your test? Well, I wasn't interested. I was... I wanted to draw this boat, you know, and that's how crazy it is. But anyway, that's sort of the background. And uh, right out of high school, I went into the Coast Guard, and uh, I, I knew I knew there was a storm coming. So uh, I thought I'd rather be on a boat saving people's lives than uh, shooting some guy that I didn't know in a jungle 9,000 miles away. So 1960, January of 1964, I joined the Coast Guard and um, spent my time there. And then when I got out and... Uh, did some traveling, went to Mexico and West Indies. and My surfing buddy and I decided to come to Hawaii in 1968, and it's pretty much history. Now, 
I remember one time, uh, or the last time we spoke, uh, I, and and I and I love this story, and so that's why I wanted to ask. But you had told me you actually learned to read more, or basically really developed being able to read in a life in a in a uh, lighthouse, oh, right? Oh, what, was, what was the story with that? Well, I, I knew how to read. It just I didn't have an in, very. Uh, when I was, uh, you know, in school and stuff, I would read required reading. You know, I mean, they tell you to do a book report or, you know, Oliver Twist or something like that. I don't know if he even read that book, but I mean, say Tom Sawyer or something, right? I would do the required reading. and But other than that, but uh, I didn't really, other than maybe, a, you know, some magazines, Popular Mechanics, Playboy or something, you know, I didn't, <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't do a lot of reading, right? But... But then when I found myself stationed on the lighthouse and uh, had lots of time to kill because I spent 30 days at a time out there on it. It was isolated. It wasn't on a, like a, a pinnacle of land or anything. It was out. It was what they call a caisson-type lighthouse, which is basically just a big spark plug sticking out of the water. No land around it. Okay. And um, we had our own launch. We had a, a dory and a, and a motor launch. and. A, so you go out there, you got 30 days on, 10 days off, 30 days on, 10 days off. And there's only four of us actually active station there, and one guy is always home. So we do a round robin, right? The guy's been 10 days off, and he, he comes back, and he comes on, and the next guy goes off for 10. So with four guys, we rotate round and round. 30 days on, 10 days off, 30 days on, around the year, right? So it's a one-year tour of duty, and I end up almost doing two years, and uh, it's a glitch in the personnel department down, and they they kind of lost track of me. And I was happy. I loved the place. I'd have probably retired there if they let me, right? But they pulled me off there, just shy of two years. But that's where I really learned to just really enjoy reading. And, and basically, I, I laugh at, and tell people that's where I got my formal education, reading. I read hundreds of books right. you know, and periodicals and stuff when I was out there. What is life generally like for someone living on a lighthouse? Well, uh, <clears throat> depending on the time of year. Like in the summer, I just wore a bathing suit. I, I didn't wear a uniform the whole time I was there, except for quarterly inspections. They would send a junior officer up from Norfolk to uh, do a quarterly inspection. We put our basically our work uniform on, like chambray shirt and, a, and a, our work work basically Levi's, you know, you know, and boondocker boots. Not, we didn't put our dress blues on or anything for a quarterly inspection. We just had our work, or basically our work clothes. Other than that, I never, I never wore a uniform the whole time I was there. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'd be wearing khakis and a chambray shirt, you know, I mean, or, I mean, uh, or whatever, some, whatever it was, but no uniforms. So, life on the lighthouse, would you consider that, was that like, do you have to be a troublemaker to get there, or is that actually like a desired position? How does that work? Uh, it's a long <laughs> story. I, I, and I ended up in a search and rescue center as a radioman, and uh, I couldn't type very well. And you used to have to, 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 all the messages would come in, you'd have to type it out and, and type it on a teletype and send it to Commander 5th Coast Guard District and all that. And I really, I, I failed typing in high school. You know, I was a lousy typist. And um, so I had a lot of trouble. So they put me, uh, they put me on the mid watch, which was from 
11, a, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. in the morning, right? And that was my shift because there was very little traffic, so I didn't have to deal with loads and loads of messages, right? And the personnel officer of the base did not like me for some reason, and I didn't like him. You fuck his wife or something? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't even know that he, I, you know, I guess yeah, he did have a wife, I guess. But no, I mean, you're looking no. a little guilty right now. That. <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't really like the guy too much. My brother was an officer in the Navy, and I knew his shit stunk, so I knew this guy's shit must stink too. So. <laughs> so I didn't, because I was enlisted, and he was, you know, I didn't count, count to the fact that he was an officer, and I was just a grungy enlisted man, right? So... And he knew I had an attitude about him. He didn't like me either. I didn't like him. He didn't like me. So one day he comes to me and he says, all right, Lazenby, I'm shipping you off to Smith Point Lighthouse. You've got 24 hours to file a, um, a grievance or whatever they want to call it or, 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 you know. Petition or whatever. Yeah, petition to not go or whatever. And I said, oh, I hung my head down, pretending like I was, oh, woe was me, because that's what he wanted, right? But inside, I was going, yeah, baby, yeah, I'm getting the <laughs> fuck out of here. <laughs> so they shipped me off. They put me on a, uh, they put me on a, on a, on a buoy tender, and we went up from Norfolk all the way up to where the um, Potomac River flows into the Chesapeake Bay, and it's the widest part of the bay. It's about 30, 35 miles wide there, and. Um, and I climbed up the ladder and went on there, and there I was. Took my gear up there, and they, they offloaded diesel and fresh water to the lighthouse, and sayonara. How's the food on the lighthouse? Yeah, well, they gave us uh, an allowance. We bought our own food. Periodically, we'd drop our motor launch and go into a place called Sunnybank, Virginia, which was on the little Wicomico River, and and uh, buy food at this little general store there. I mean, and uh, fish. Lots of fish, lots of crabs, occasionally oysters, wintertime duck. We were, oh, like you duck hunt? Yeah, you know. Oh, that's awesome. You know, like sitting ducks in the water? Yeah. Oh, we shot them while they're sitting in the water with a twenty-two. Ooh. Well. And lower the dory and paddle over to them and get the duck and bring it back, you know. That's awesome. But in the wintertime, they would raft up really um, thick. I mean, this, like especially low ceiling. I don't know if you know much about duck you guys probably duck hunt up where you're from, right? I don't know a whole lot about duck hunting. I'd be but, lying here if I right. Went. Okay, well, they, in other words, they call it low ceiling when the when the say the clouds are down to like 500 feet. You know, low, the ducks don't like to fly, and they they'll sit, especially if the weather's calm. You know, in a you know kind of Malia waters we call it in Hawaii, you know, flat. And they just there would be millions of them. Just pick one, pick one close. You don't want to rove too far to get one. So you just get your dinner right there, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was um, that's where we got our food. Yep. What about the fishing off the? Uh... Well, there's a lot of striped striped bass, and and uh, and bluefish. Yeah. And then we, of course, on the bottom, if you got you get past the rocks, because they had riprap, big huge rocks, all around this. It was basically a steel caisson that came up out of the water when they built that. It was built to eighteen ninety. Four or three or something like that. Wow! And then they put these huge rip. They put these round cylinders around. Uh, I don't know cylinders basically, and then they put another one on top till they get above the water line, pump all the water out, and and seal it. And then they put big huge rocks all around the base on the outside. Then they fill the inside with concrete. But 
where the concrete was, they had two water tanks. So basically there was two water tanks below the, the certain level where the concrete was. So it was very stable where it was, but uh, you, you couldn't really fish right down below. You couldn't like send the line straight down. You just get in the rocks, right? right, right. You have to cast it out and get in the sand and you get flounder and stuff like that, you know? That's awesome. I remember, t- did you actually have a little side business going there at one oh, point? Oh, yeah, that's where kind of, that was my first uh, first uh, experience commercial fishing. And I was stationed with a, the guy that was the the first class bosun mate from Ocracoke, North Carolina, named Billy Midget. And he was an older guy, and he said, hey, how would you like to make some extra money out here? What do you mean? He said, well, you know, about this time of year at the the stripers are going to come in really good. Well, there, back there, the colloquial name for a striper is rockfish in, in a Chesapeake right, Bay area. Yeah. And also uh, down in North Carolina, that like Outer Banks, right? So he said that the rock will be in really good. You know, we can, we can scoop up, you know, and, and sell the fish in the dock. Oh, I said, sure, what do we need to do? So next time we took the launch in, we went to... Uh, uh, this little general store place, and we got a 300-watt light bulb and a, and a socket, you know, a light socket thing, some wire, and a, we had an old, we had old five-gallon steel oil cans left over from our, because we created our own electricity out there. We had two generators, and we'd run one 30 days, shut it off, and run the other one. We had oil change, so we had buckets, these steel five-gallon buckets, and uh, we, um, cut the bottom, we took the top off and then painted the inside white and put the socket up there, put the 300 watt light bulb and then on dark nights we'd lower that over the side, not in the water but just above the water and shine down Oh cool. and then when slack tide come, boy the, the, the rockfish or stripers would come up in there like thick and all you do we had these boat rods with maybe, I don't know, 60 pound test on there and 3 feet of 40 pound monofilament with a hook and a piece of Josh's, Uncle Josh's pork rind yeah yeah and just drag it through the shadows man boom you're on just like boom you're on boom you're on we get a couple hundred pounds of you know stripers in the morning we 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 call in the the, so we have to call in the norfolk for permission to drop the launch we just couldn't go willy-nilly and and use the launch right we'd have to say request permission for mail run and pick up supplies and they'd want to know what the weather was like and we'd always lie (laughs) because if if it was three feet or if it was blowing 20 and three feet it was no you can't do it you know you got to be two you know two feet or less and you can go but we was we'd we'd lie about what the weather was and we go go get some supplies and we we go to this guy and uh, his name was smith and he was a great big fat guy with big bib overalls and and he ran the fish dock he bought fish and He'd, he'd weigh our fish, and then he'd, he'd pull out of his bib overalls, he'd pull a little pad of paper and a pencil, and he'd go like this, and, okay, well, you got 180 pounds of rock and 43 pounds of blues, and rock is 20 cents a pound, and the blues are 10 cents a pound, and I owe you guys, but yeah, 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 whatever it was, right? And then he'd reach into his pocket and pull out a lot of cash. It was like this big around. Awesome. With with rubber bands around it, right? And he'd yeah. go, and he'd pay us cash. So basically, 
we were utilizing government property and making money on the side. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the statute of limitations is... It's, it's probably passed This on that. is like 1966, right? So, I mean, I think we're... I think I'm good that I could reveal all this and not get... Got pulled in by the yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Department of Justice or something, right? Well, I don't know. They are cracking down on oh, a lot of stuff are, lately. Yeah. You know? yeah, they want to know your checking account. Yeah, yeah, you know. It's, yeah, <laughs> they, they might not want to hear this story. Well, they might know? want their cut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what would that work out like wages-wise like versus what a Coast Guard guy got paid oh, back then? I, yeah, I was probably making um, twice what I'd make a day. I mean, you know, of course, we have to split it. I mean, we weren't, we were getting rich, but... You got to imagine you could in 1965 you could buy a six pack of beer for a dollar and a quarter. What was gasoline was 23 cents a gallon. I mean, wow. I could buy a chicken at this general store for a dollar 50. I mean, a, you know, a fryer chicken. Right, right. I mean, it's like the prices, you know, it's like, well, that's not a lot of money, but, you know, but it but it is. Yeah. 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 Well, especially if you consider even in my lifetime, I can remember getting like up in New England and Although you can't sell most of them now. I can remember we got stripers occasionally, right. you know. I mean, I know they get a lot more money now, but I can remember, like, getting 50 cents a pound. Right. On, and it's like, so really, the price didn't come up that much. Yeah, we used to crab, too. We used to do the same thing when the crabs would come. Oh, you guys had crab traps? Well, no, what we did was we put the light there, right? And we, we had a ladder that we could lower down on a block and tackle. Okay. And we lowered, we made a basket, and we lowered the basket down next to where the ladder was, and we got a... The old dip nets with the cotton thing, where we you cut the cotton off and you get chicken wire. No real crabber for blue crawl crabs uses those nets that you buy out of the store with, oh, the, yeah. with the cotton. No, in fact, no. No, yeah. you put chicken wire because they get all tangled. So you just scoop them up and then dirt dump them over and they just fall right out into your basket. Dip them so a slack tide, they'd all float up around the around the the lighthouse there, and we just dip, 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 dip. But we only got ten cents a pound for those, but. You get enough poundage, you know, you get a couple hundred pounds, 20, 30 bucks, right? You know? Yeah, oh, yeah. You go in, you know, if that was, if you could make, you know, I think minimum wage in those days was probably a dollar quarter an hour, something like that. Wow. If we could make, we make $15, $20 a piece that night, cash, that was like, yeah, that was, that's okay, you know? I mean, we didn't have any expenses. Right, and you're getting and, paid. and the other thing, we, what if we weren't doing that? What were we going to be doing? Yeah, well, what would you be doing? I don't know, upstairs yanking the chain. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. It was just a way of filling the time in, too, right? And it was fun. You know, let's, you know it's like, you know, so. Right, right, totally. You two or three crabs, that's a beer. Right. You know, that's the way I looked at it, right? The, you know, you mentioned, is it, it's midget, right? Midget. Is that any relationship to, like... The, the midget, like the Coast Guard vessel well, yeah, out that, here? The, that, that, that Coast Guard cutter called the midget yeah. is, is actually uh, named after a, uh, a Coast Guard guy that was uh, like a hero. He did something spectacular, saved a bunch of lives or did something. I'm, I don't really know. I know I, once I, I read the, the biop on that, you know, but it's been so many years. But uh, if you go down to North Carolina... On the Outer Banks, you got the Midgets, the Scarboroughs, the Yarboroughs, and the Greys. It's all surnames. Yep. You know, big families, like extended families, cousins and cousins. And if you look at the, uh, say, when I was in the Coast Guard, there was only 32,000 in the whole world active Coast Guard members. Wow. The Great Lakes Receiving Center for the Navy in, in Chicago, in the Great Lakes, yep. they have more people in one 
one naval base than the whole Coast Guard had throughout the world. And that includes Loran stations in the Mediterranean and icebreakers at, at South Pole, et cetera, right? Right, wow. So, so uh, but if you look at the, at the, the personnel list, like there's a booklet they come out with all the people that are in the Coast Guard, right? And you look at midgets, there's probably, today, if you look on the personnel directory of the Coast Guard, active, active, there's probably 150, 200 midgets. Wow. They're so all somehow second, third, fourth cousins. Really? Yeah. So that's a long-standing family of tradition Oh, yeah, tradition and, they, they there. Were, and, and there wasn't that many, op- that much that opportunity on the Outer Banks. You're either a fisherman or, or nothing, you know what I mean? Or maybe a boat ride or something, but there's not, back then there wasn't, a, you know, now they got tourism stuff and all that, but, you know, back Mini in the golf. day. Huh? Mini golf now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It, it, that's, you know, the guys figure out what they want to do, what, what they're going to do with their life, you know. They say, well, I'm going to go, go commercial fishing with Dad, or, you know, I'm going to go on the Coast Guard. A lot of guys opted for the Coast Guard. Right. Well, you know, you said you got in there to avoid Vietnam, but didn't some of the Coast Guard actually end up in well, they Vietnam? Did. They did. And uh, they did. A, as a matter of fact, a couple of uh, the like the 82-footers that were uh, stationed in Group Norfolk ended up over there. One of them was a Point Harris, and funny thing was, years ago I was in at Port Allen, um, or was it not Willy Willy? It was not Willy Willy Harbor in, in Kauai, and I saw the Point Harris, and it was still active, and I went up, I saw, I saw one of the guys, I said, hey, and this this." This cutter used to be in Norfolk, Virginia back in the 60s. And he said, it went to Vietnam. He said, yeah, how'd you know that? I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm very familiar with it, right? You know, because I spent uh, a while on a, on a 95-footer, which was the 95s were being phased out when they're bringing the 82s on board. And um, so it was like moored, depending on the, their patrol, but a lot of times it'd be moored right next to where we were moored. You know, so I was familiar with that vessel. And another one called the... Uh, Point Thatcher, and at Point Thatcher they had t- turbines, gas turbines on that 82-footer, and they, after a couple of years, they got rid of it because, matter of fact, there's a, a website, this Coast Guard's uh, sailors, and it's you could go on there. Actually, it's a sub chapter of Facebook, and you can communicate with all these Coast Guard, and they pick, post pictures of their careers and where they were and stationed. And one guy brought up the Point Thatcher, and I said, yeah, I'm very familiar with that. It had turbines, blah, blah, blah. And they had, on the stern, they had, to, the exhaust ports were like three feet diameter, these great big, huge exhaust ports. And the guy, the guy that was writing his side of the deal wrote back, he said, yeah, you're right. And that, he said, I, I was on board when it, that something happened and that some of the, a lot of the water went in there and knocked out one of the turbines. And then it was something else happened, and the other turbine went out, and they floundered. They ended up on the beach, right? And everybody got off safely. And then when they, when they finally salvaged the vessel, it wasn't that bust up, but they, they tore the turbines out and replaced it with diesels, you yeah. know, reciprocating diesels, right? Amazing that it has such a long career. I mean, that really is truly... Well, the 80, 82s are now... Matter of fact, I've, I've seen in uh, Boats and Harbors... And stuff where they're selling eighty. Some people are selling eighty twos that they've been uh, surplus. They sold them off, you know. Yep. 
Uh, I saw one on uh, the current uh, copy of Boats and Harbors. There was an 82-footer. I think they wanted like 90000 for it, but you keep that thing in fuel would be like... Like insane. I mean, you know, what are you going to... How are you going to justify burning that much fuel? It would just be a rich guy's toy, like a lot of the big game boats. It would yeah. just be a rich guy toy. And, it, and you'd have to want it because it's, it's not even it's not even laid out pro- properly for anything. Right. It's a patrol boat. Right. I mean, I don't know what you do with it. I mean, I imagine they probably weren't that comfortable in the first place. Right. I mean, like the bunks and everything. No, you, I mean, there was no like down in the birthing area. There was no ports. You didn't have any. You had pumped in ventilation. It's like being a, in a tomb. You know, right. I could. I'll never forget that time that one Radden down there. I think it was yeah, one of those Al Shebe's or something. That thing where you go down and go down below and then the deep V. I mean, down below, like where the cabin is. Yeah. And there was like plate guys would sleep. Coffins. Down there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, you couldn't get me in there. To, I'd I'd sleep outside and get wet all night before I'd sleep in that place. Uh, that's on the. Uh, it's the Al Shebe four that has that. Like where you like go in and below. They've got like you step into it. Uh, oh, no. no. Yeah, I would. It wouldn't be good for someone who's claustrophobic. That's, claustrophobic. that's for sure. Well, you would hate that one then. Yeah, that would be. I don't know how I survived. I spent a year on the Mohican, which was a 110 foot tug. And same thing in our birthing area, we didn't have any ports. And you go to my, my bunk was right up the top bunk. And I had probably, I don't know, like I couldn't sit up in the bunk. Oh, man. You have to go up and go slither in like a snake. Right. And it had wires going above me and these like these trays where the wires go go forward and aft and yep. pipes and stuff and and we we broke ice too so when some when they were when they were pumping water to the bow tanks to break the ice because what they do is they pump all the water out get light up forward and ram the ice flow and then pump water up to the bow tanks holding and it would crush the ice and back up and while they back it up there they they dewater the bow again, and then they run up on the ice again, brush the water up, get the weight, crush the ice, go back. The C and D canal between. Um, how long did that process take? Between sometimes all night, depending on how cold it was. You know, yeah. I mean, some some years you didn't even. Well, we only did it once, but the one, that one winter it was bad enough. We had to go up there from Norfolk and go up and bust, bust ice in the C and D. That's the canal between the Delaware Bay and the Chesapeake, the northern reach of the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah, but. Um, Interesting. Ah, it is interesting. But that's the way the that's the way the big, like the north wind, the west wind, the east wind. That you know that they had. When I was in, they had four icebreakers that go to Antarctica and to Arctica, and that they use the same system: pumping water, run up onto the thing and pump water and crush the ice. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't know that was part of the deal. Yeah, it's part of the deal. Wow. Of course, all the bows are super reinforced and stuff, right? Right. And all the icebreakers also shaped. To the point where there's no hard edges, because if the ice forms, you don't want it locking the the vessel in. You want you want the ice when it's, as it forms. If it's going, to, if you're stuck, right, and it, and forms, they they want the ice to form and push and push it up. That makes sense. So there's no hard. Then they get locked in. Yeah, you know. So if it's just squeeze it, they want to squeeze it up so it pops up like you know, on the more towards the surface rather than getting locked in and, and actually getting pulled down. You know, as the, as the ice comes up, you know. Right. Wow. That's pretty wild. I had no idea that's how that worked. Yeah. 
Like, so what about when you see one of those icebreakers that's just like going full on through the ice? It's just thin ice that they're going through then? Well, I, I, I don't know the current ones, but I mean, I guess they could do like 24. Like the big ones, like the West, West Wind and North Wind, could probably do like 24, 36-inch ice, no problem. Wow. And it all depends how how the pack itself. In other words, if, it's, if you're going into a thing that's five miles deep, right, it's a little different, right? But if you're going into a, just a shield, it may be a quarter of a mile because it's got to have, if you're going to bang into it, you got to be able to push it around. You can't, if it's 12 miles deep, you know, and you hit that, you know, it's like you can hit it, but where's it going to go? Right. You got 12 miles of it going that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different movie. That's yeah, pretty wild, man. Yeah. I never really thought about that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's, uh, I look back on it, you know, and I did four years and uh, it was an adventure. And I look back at it now, especially dealing with this web, one website with all these other guys and, and listening to their adventures and they posting pictures. There was a whole lot more adventure out there I never really got to. But it was the 60s, man. I got, in, got out, you know, 1960, just a, right up just before 1968, man. I was like, it was party time, right? Everybody was having a hell of a time. I wanted to get, I wanted to join the party, right? You know, and I didn't uh, want yeah. in the military. I was like, oh, man, it's, you know, I look back at it, well, you get out, you're just shy of 22, right? Well, oh, that's prime partying years, yeah, too. And, and, yeah, and, 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 you know, you, at 22, 16 more years looks like a 1,000 years. When I was 38, looking back, I could have done those 16 years standing on my head, and I'd be retired and collecting all this money and doing whatever else. But it's life. Yeah, well, it's, what is it they say? Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Well, certainly. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Yes, sir. You get out of the Coast Guard. Yeah. How the hell did you find yourself in Kona? Like, I mean, that it just so it was a surf trip. Well, not to Kona, but uh, my buddy and I and our girlfriends, we we were hanging out in, in Santa Barbara working. We all had jobs for like three months, and we, winter was coming on. We said, and we talked about what we wanted to do and everything. And uh, I was the only out of the four of us. I was the only one without a college degree or anything. Right? And they, they all had college behind him and stuff my friend Don his girlfriend was a school teacher and my girlfriend she was older than I was and she was a grad student at Berkeley and they were talking about going up to Santa Cruz and, and uh, taking extension courses and this and that and blah 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 doing the academic stuff and my buddy Don and I just wanted to surf right and we told the girls well, you guys go ahead and go up to Santa Cruz we're going to go to Hawaii and said, oh no we're going to Hawaii with you right so yeah we all came to Hawaii together, right, and uh, surfed the North Shore, and then we went to went to Maui, and then we were over Maui surfing and doing this, and then we every everybody we talked to says housing is so hard to find, it's real trouble, you know. And they 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 weren't in, the guys on Maui, the surfers I met on Maui, we were out there in the lineup and talking to the guys. They said, "Oh man, you don't want to be here because it's." It's really expensive, and there's no place to rent, and they were just didn't want more people, right? Well, this was in the 60s. Yes, yeah, I mean, because that's, that's the same story today, but, 19, it's, but it's true. 1968, right? All right. And uh, they said this, that, and the other thing, and so we went back to Oahu, and we went back to Oahu. We were there one day. We said, screw this. We're going back to Maui, so we're going to figure out somehow to make this work, right? We went, flew back to Maui the next day. And uh, my, my buddy and I were out at Hokipa surfing, and the girls went into town at Paia, and they went into this little store, and they talked to this uh, this guy that had this, like, secondhand store, like, secondhand uh, 
washers, washers and dryers and, te and, and uh, refrigerators and mattresses and stuff. I mean, it's like a secondhand furniture right, store, right, right. right? And they they got his confidence or whatever, right? And he said, well, I know a house. I know the house that might be available. And he drew a little map. And he said, this is a, this is a real estate guy that takes care of this house. So we, we followed the map, and we, when we got out of the water, right, we hooked up with the girls, and, and we said, we heard about this house. It might be available. So we were just outside of, of, of uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Maui, but where Paia is. I mean, I know where that is, yeah. yeah anyway, Paia. Yeah. Well, we were on the side of Paia a couple miles. Went down this, torn towards the ocean, went down this little dirt road, turned back, kind of going parallel to the ocean, just past a little Chinese graveyard. It was right on the ocean. Come to this little house, little two-bedroom, one-bathroom house, right on the friggin' ocean, like a plantation-style, single-wall construction plantation-style house with a corrugated roof and all that, you know. And, and uh, I said, wow, this is cool. Sounds you know? awesome. Yeah. And there was a few broken windows and some broken screens and stuff, and the grass was about 18 inches high. And everything, but we said we didn't care, you know. Yeah. Awesome. So we we drove into Wailuku to see this this real estate guy, this Japanese guy. It was a real estate guy, and he goes, we all we all kind of kind of straightened ourselves, looked like we were responsible, right? You know, and went in there and talked to this guy, four of us. And he says, "Yeah, that house is empty. It is available, but you know, there's some windows broken and there's some screens." I said, "Don't worry about. It. I can fix that. I can. I'll do that." Well, the grass, and I said, don't worry, we'll hire somebody to come in with a big power mower and cut all this grass down and everything. He says, well, the rent's kind of high. Well, how high is the rent? He says, well, it's $75 a month. It's a house on the ocean. Wow. $75 a month. And the, we said to him, do you think we could pay you six months rent in advance? <laughs> <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, you can do that. You know, here, here, here. Wow. So we, uh, what we, a difference in time! Oh, uh, we paid six months rent in advance, and all we did was surf and party. Awesome. We didn't hit a lick. None of us had jobs. We just, <laughs> we just partied till the money ran out. We were so we were so yeah, you know, a magical mystery tour, right? We, we, just, we didn't even think about tomorrow, right? You know, fuck no. That's when, awesome. When the six months ran up, you know, and then we had to find another place, and we heard about the Big Island. Let's. Let's go to the Big Island. So we all came to the Big Island. Do you know, did the, did the Maui Wowie strand still actually exist back then? Oh, we were smoking uh, Mexican Michoacan then. Oh, yeah? Ten, $10 for a full ounce. I mean, a baggie this big around. Yeah. You know. Ten bucks. Ten bucks. At, at, in Lahaina, a guy was selling them out of a suitcase at a place called the Whale's Tail, which was a flop house, we, <laughs> which is across, right across the street from, now it's, a, now it's like a, you know, artsy fartsy uh, boutiques in there and all this stuff. They expanded it, but it, that was just a two-story little building with like eight bedrooms upstairs and a bathroom at the end of the hall. And these rent these rooms out for ten bucks a month, uh, ten bucks a week. What this guy would just like fly in with weed once a week or something? Uh, he, he was just there. I don't know. He was always there with, with a suitcase full of just like the resident drug dealer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like so. Really, Lahaina hasn't changed that much. Well. I, <laughs> Well, the, the funny, thing, the odd thing is, as you say that, and I'm not a big ad advocate of, I'm not trying to promote drug use or anything like that. Right, right, but, totally. Uh, but um, we uh, we actually sit 
if you if I mean, you know where the Pioneer Inn is, just to the left of Pioneer Inn is uh, is the courthouse. Yep. Which was also a substation for the police, and then there's a library just a little bit farther down from that. This is right right in front of where all the right, right, right. far sport fishing boats hang out, right? Right, right. And we sit on the lawn in front of the courthouse and smoke weed, and the <laughs> cops would walk right by and go, "How you guys doing today? Fine." It's like I don't even think they knew what it was back then. I really don't. They claim, oh, yeah, we've been doing this stuff around here for years. Well, why? they walk right past it. We're smoking weed. They had no idea, or they didn't give a shit. They might probably just didn't give a shit. I don't know. I mean, I've definitely heard stories of Kona, like people getting pulled over with open containers back in the day, and the cops just couldn't be bothered. Like, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, a lot of that happened. I knew a guy, that, a local guy. An old, he was a, a laborer on a job I worked on one time, and, and he had uh, five DUIs. And still driving. Five. Five. Wow. That, that's before Mad Mothers and everything. You know? Right, right. Yeah, wow. Like, what happened to him? Did he eventually die in a he, car accident? He, no, he actually eventually died, but not in a car accident. He huh. died a peaceful death as an old man. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Glad he didn't take anyone with him. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I could say I know his name. I wouldn't. I don't yeah, 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 yeah. He, he no. still has. Uh, uh, yeah, no need to trash. He still talk has him. kids on the island, right? So I don't want to say. Yeah, anything. yeah, yeah. We yeah. don't need to trash talk anybody. For no, sure. he was. He was. He was a neat guy. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, besides, and he after work, he'd work. He'd come to work every morning, go to work all day, right? And right. Happy go lucky guy. Great. Always smiling. Always great guy and everything. But he just loved to drink. We know a lot of guys like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So well, that's part of it for yeah. sure. He was. Uh, he was. Whatever. But anyhow, huh. where were we? <laughs> so we're getting our weed every week from a guy in a suitcase in Lahaina. Yeah. At some point, I'm assuming you had to go to work. Well, that's when we decided to come to the big island. Oh. Because we figured the island's bigger, right? And there'd be more opportunity because it's just because it's bigger. I mean, we didn't know. Right, 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 right. So we, we decided, you know, we put this, you know, Maui kind of played itself out for us, right? And and uh, we heard maybe we get. Did you look for work over there and it wasn't happening? No, we didn't even. Nah, you didn't even we try. Didn't, didn't even try. Yeah. Just ran. We, I sold. I sold my surfboard to get the airplane ticket. To, I mean, that's how broke I was. You're, I sold my surfboard for thirty dollars. Are you fucking burned the candle right to the bottom? Right to the bottom. Like <laughs> I mean, it, it, the ticket ticket to fly to Kona was. Well, we had phony youth fare cards back then, but the base price for anybody for an adult. To fly on a jet, a 737 from Mount Kahului to Kona, was eighteen dollars. Eighteen bucks. Eighteen bucks. So with a youth fare card, you stand by, you can fly for nine bucks. Unreal. So I I landed in Kona with twenty one dollars in my pocket. <laughs> so what was your first move when you got here? Well, I find a place to sleep, which was Kahalu Beach Park back then. No, no way. <laughs> no way. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Ironically, I've actually slept uh, a few nights on that park myself, but for one reason or another. Yeah, yeah. You know that piece of shit uh, red house right across the street from it? Yeah. That I've lived in that for a couple years with this other guy. It was yeah. just like the wor- it. It was the biggest piece of shit, worst shack yeah. you've ever seen. But we had so much fun there. Right. Like it. That like we had problems with like the uh, with the electrician over there. And like the electricity and we'd get an electrician in and they're yeah. like, they wouldn't touch any of it. Right. They're like, this is just, they're like, this is just too, too old, too dangerous. Yeah. So we ended up doing all the electrical work ourselves, mm-hmm. And every time we did it, it was like hope and pray. We would be like, 
and then like grab a wire. Oh, oh, it was fucking gnarly over there. But some judge in Oahu owns that. It right. was like in this trust. And we had like this agreement, like we're going to charge you next to nothing, but we're also going to know that you, like you don't live here. Like you right. live here, but if we have any problems, you don't live here anymore. Right. You know what I mean? So like this, I mean, everything about the structure was illegal. If anyone went, went in there, the plumbing was like totally illegal. Like it just like the pipe like mysteriously went into a hole in the ground and just. Oh yeah. They it, went down. Just yeah, to, yeah. 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 They, yeah you know what? Those pipes went in a lava tube. Yeah. Uh, probably dude. It was like everything well, about know, the house was sketch, you know they, but, but it was so much fun. You know where they rent the surfboards? That little, that, that house that has a surfboard yeah, yeah. place. Yeah. Yeah. In 19, no. Yeah. 1978. I lived in that house. It was a, it was a house. I rented oh, that so house. So I just lived two houses down from you. Yeah. So yeah. I, I lived in that house for a year, right? And um, <laughs> and that that house was this it'd be right behind the house, like on the same piece of property was. You could see the foundation of an ancient Hawaiian home, Holly. You know where they stack yep. the rocks. Yep. And that whole area through back back through there were like the stone churches with the, you know all that area back through there was. Very, very thick with Hawaiian. I mean, you know, that was... Oh, right. There was hundreds, if not thousands, of Hawaiians lived in that area back in the day. Because I, I know some guys, Hawaiian guys that live there, right? That They told me, I, in 1972, I worked rebuilding like what is no longer exists, called the... Uh, it was at the, uh, the Kona Lagoon Hotel. Yep. And... Um, I, they may have tore that down before they, you showed up, or, or no? When I when I when I showed up, it was still there, but it was like poke like post apocalyptic. Like you could walk in there, and it looked like a nuclear. Like you could break in. Yeah. Like a lot of people had, yeah, yeah. and it like had homeless people living in it, and yeah. like it fucking was like yeah, but it was that crazy. was a brand new hotel in '72 when we were building it, right? But uh, how was it? How did it rapidly fall apart so quickly? Well, what happened was okay. So that that was basically built. The money behind that was a Japanese developer, right? And they were going to bring all Japanese tourists in. So the rooms were real small. The rooms were like 10 feet by 12 feet or something, but a little bathroom, right? And it was all, it was all uh, projected towards the Japanese tourists, right? Gotcha. So uh, in the, I believe it was the early 80s, when the Japanese economy took a dump, big, a real, because they overinvested in all kinds of stuff, and they took a dump, and that's when the uh, their house count went down, you know, and they basically, the developer just walked away from the property. Now Bishop Estate owns the land underneath all that land, right, right, even where the where the where the uh, where the Ko Beach Hotel was, that was all Bishop Estate land, right, right, and uh, so. When the developer just walked, they couldn't find anybody else to take the hell to it. Nobody said, well, these rooms are too small. It would cost $20 million to upgrade this place and blah, blah, blah. And we don't, you know, so no one wanted it. So basically it was, it was empty for 10 years and finally they tore it down. Yeah. And eventually that's what happened. But they didn't wait 10 years for the KO Beach Hotel. No, they got right on that. They they probably because they didn't want the same bullshit again. I yeah, mean, that thing exactly. was like a homeless colony. Right. Yeah. 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 I gotta say, it looks really nice down well, they, there. They want to make a cultural Hawaiian, and, and it should be because that whole. Well, I was gonna tell you, Wayne, the one Hawaiian guy that I worked with when I first started working there in '72, he said all this land from here to Keho Bay, all through, all the way up past Banyans and everything, 
that whole ocean front all the way back a couple hundred yards, two or three hundred yards up from the ocean, was all a huge Hawaiian village. Was steep with, uh, you know, artif- I mean, you know, it was right. it was a viable. That's yeah. where they hung out, you know. I mean, right, that's where know, they lived. A huge, but so that's all got history. And he said, "There's so much." He didn't say the word juju, but some, you know, like some yeah, like mana, mana in yeah. this area, right? You know that he was like, they they went to work at places. You know, he was a laborer working at the at the at one hotel as a construction laborer, but. They weren't really big on having to do it, but it was, at least it was a job, right? I mean, they didn't... You had conflicting uh, loyalties, right? I mean, right. one is to, to your heritage and everything else, and the other is, well, I, I need to get... I need to pay for my car, right? Or whatever, you know, whatever. Right, know. I mean, I think a lot of us live in those conflicts every day with certain things, right? A- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But you know. Yeah, no, it, it, is, it is good that they're, that they're redeveloping that because that... Uh, that area, it really is, like you said, it's like sacred. And it looks, it just looks so much better. Like, it really, really does. It's right. nice to have those out of there. So, well, and you know, I mean, we need open spaces. We do. Yeah. I mean, I, if I always said years ago, I mean, go back 25 years ago, I said, what we ought to do is every square inch of oceanfront land that's not developed. Should be you compensate whoever the owner is, give them the whatever money they want, but that should be preserved for the future of all the children coming in the future, right? So we don't have any children going to be on this island in 35 years, but they need to go to the beach. They can't be like I give you an example. Like when I lived on Maui, we used to go ride from where we lived. Like if the if the surf was up on the up by Honolulu Bay, up past Lahaina, up around the corner. Yep. That area now, if you've been there, it's, it's all condos, big $5 million condos, gated communities and all this. Other stuff. You can't even get to the beaches that, that we used to sleep on. Like we'd drive up there the night before because we knew the surf was going to be up and sleep on the beach next to our surfboard because we we're going to hit it first thing in the morning rather than drive all the way from where we were, right? You can't even get to those beaches unless, you go th- unless you, you're paying $500 a night or more right. and go through the gate. And all that stuff. I know that's so broken. And so you know, so what? What about the kids on Maui? The future generations. That's why I said they should just take. And you know, okay, if you want to build your hotel, build it. You know, two hundred yards inland. I've always thought that. I've always thought they should. You don't have to be right down on top of the water. You can spit in the water from your lanai. You know what I mean? Which. I mean, it's not, even a, it's not even a great way to build anyways because you always end up having problems with the right. ocean moving back and forth, right. and sh- you know. It, 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 and you've you got you to worry. I mean, I think the people, uh, rich people are good. They create jobs. God bless them, right? But you've got, you got to be, you got to think about the, everybody. I, right? I couldn't agree anymore. You know, like some places in Indonesia, I had a crew member, um, I had a crew guy recently who got hurt. On, on the ride in, he banged his eye, and uh, we had to take him to the emergency room. And uh, we ended up going the lower road uh, to the hospital, and he was amazed that the beaches here uh, were still free because at his home, mm-hmm. now, you've got to pay for parking. Uh, you have to— This is Indonesia? This is in Indonesia. Not all of Indonesia, but in some parts, like where he yeah. lives, uh, you've got to pay for parking. You've got to pay to have a spot to sit on the beach. You have to pay to go in the water— like 
They've let that get privatized. So certain areas, people can have a beach like right in front of them and they can't even afford to go in it because it has basically just been privatized where like he can't take his family to the beach because every last element of it cost him money to go in the water. It's, it's criminal. It's criminal. I think I think the beaches should be for everybody. I really do. I really believe that. Well, there's a, there's an old song that came out in the early when they had the the Hawaiian Renaissance for music, right? Around the early '70s, late '60s, early '70s, and one of the songs was you know the the lyrics goes, "The beaches they sell to build their hotels." Like my papa and I once knew, singing "Why Not Why Manalo Blues." You ever heard that? Uh, I don't know that I've heard that, to be honest. I'd yeah. like to say I have, but yeah, I but, mean, it sounds nice. It sounds like, you well, know, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, 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 uh, I mean, it sounds relevant for so, sure. Soulful lament on the fact that, you know, literally the beaches that they're selling to build their hotels, my pop and I once knew you could just walk freely on the beach. You know, there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't, you know, go to the beach, right? Now you go to the beach, you got to put on a good shirt so you can walk through the lobby to get to the beach if they'll let you. You know right. what I mean? It's like, no, now they've got access, you know, they have to right. have access every 300 feet along the coastline and all this. And they can't restrict you from going to high tide, but that's not enough. I mean, it's not enough. I agree. Yeah. That's a huge, that's a huge, that's a huge issue facing so many places, you know, like, <sighs> yeah, that's the one thing, right? You know, you have, you dream about a beach house, but yeah, you know, same right. You're taking away that access from somebody else. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> At some point, you know, I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it, it's a, lots of problems. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Okay, so we're building a hotel. Yeah. How do you become captain? How, how did that transition happen? Oh, okay, so, you know, I've, like I said, I've always loved boats and being on the water and fishing and all that stuff. And I was working construction, you know. I, I didn't want to, oh, my, oh, well, I'll get back to it. But anyway... I came to the Big Island. I got a job at Kona Village. Okay. Because my buddy and his girlfriend went out there and got jobs. And they said, come out here. They give you a free place to live and three meals a day and pay you. Okay. Because housing was a problem. And Kona Village is way up the line. You knew where Kona Village is, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. Well, the highway didn't exist. So you know where Makalei Golf Course is up here? I do. Right? Yeah. Across the street, if you look, next time you're up there. The entrance to Mock Lake Golf Course. You look across the street. Where it drops down. You look across the street of the highway, right? Yep. There's a little house in the bushes there with a gate, like a cattle gate. I know exactly where it is. That used to be the entrance to Kona Village. Wow. Seven miles down a one-lane Jeep trail to get to Kona Village. Wow. Seven miles. That's nine miles from that point into Kailua to, to Palani Road and chunks of Kukini Highway. is nine miles from there down. So it's nine miles up, then seven miles down in a one-lane Jeep trail. That's why they had employees' quarters down there. They had a bunkhouse in the back, <laughs> and you get a room, you know. With a, well, well, kind of a small world, but you know that house you're just talking about there, right, right, right below the golf course? I actually looked at renting that at mm-hmm. one point, uh, that flat area below the uh, golf course mm-hmm. there. We wanted to put an archery range in there, um, but when everything was said and done, Makalei, they just— they, even though we were going to have our own insurance and everything, they just couldn't get around that. So I actually know exactly what you're talking about because I actually looked at renting that piece of very property. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so I was working in Kona Village, and um, I was there for a while, and it was all it was all good. It was an adventure, and uh, 
there were some some things <coughs> some things went went a little haywire. We got partying too hardy down there, and uh, they gave seven of us our walking papers one morning. Oh no! Because we had partied too hardy with the with the customers, right? We had all the customers back in the employees' quarters, smoking weed, drinking beer, and uh, listening to Jimi Hendrix, right? And the general manager showed up. Oh boy! So seven of us the next day were eighty-six out of there. So how long did that job last? Not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> I was there a couple of months, you know, and then it's like they say, "Get the hell off there! You got thirty minutes to get off the property. Here's your paycheck." Oof! I said, "Well, I'm flying out." He said, "Well, see, you don't understand. They used to have their own airfield there. Oh wow! They had their own five thousand foot run- runway, and the twin engine Cessas used to bring in. The tourists never came on the road. I didn't know that. The tourists came." Tourists came on by plane. Wow. The plane, boss. The plane. Ah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 the little guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah the yeah, plane, yeah. boss. Anyway, anyhow, so I said, well, I'm not. We'll give you a ride to the top of the hill, they said. I said, I'm not going that way. I said, I'm flying out of here. I'm going to Honolulu. You can't do that. I said, yes, I can, and I will. Oh, you can't do that, but that's for the tourists. I said, no, no. These planes, these Royal Hawaiian Airlines is controlled by the Federal Aviation administration you cannot deny me buying a ticket on that plane to go to honolulu that's against federal and i'm a veteran so i know my rights yep oh they, they caved in quick yeah i said well, I'll, I'll see you in court and you're gonna anyway you know i no no of course. I, I flew out of there i'm going like you know flying ah. out of there you know it's like so i flew to honolulu and um had my got my merchant seaman's papers because I already had them because I'd been in the Coast Guard. Coast Guard yeah. yeah, so I took an ammo ship to Vietnam. <laughs> oh, really? Out of, out of Honolulu. That was an, that's another adventure. We don't need to get into that, but uh, that, I don't know. That, that sounds that's, like a pretty cool adventure. That's uh, that's another episode of my life. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so I eventually ended up back in Kona and working construction, right? And I didn't want to go back to asking people what they wanted on their salad, right? So anyhow, uh, so I got into construction. You know, I mean, you're a waiter, right? You know, that's what it, you do. So, well, I'm, you just yada yada over an ammo ship. That sounds awesome, but it was it was a little spooky. All right, come on, you got to tell us a little bit about an ammo ship. Come on, Will, how does that work? Well, I I I uh, wanted a ship out of Honolulu, and I waited and I waited and I waited, and I ran out of money, and I was basically sleeping at Amoana Beach Park, and I'd go down to the Union Hall, the Seafarers Union of the Pacific, every day or every other day or whatever. And say so you got a, you got a trip for me because I already paid him thirty dollars provisional membership, right? A, you know, provisional means you're not really a full member. But yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Whatever. Means yeah. we'll take your fees. They'll take your money. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So finally, I went down there one day and says, "I got a trip. I got a ride for you." They call it a ride. I got a ride for you. And here's the thing: you got to go down to Pier Four and sign the ship's articles at the Coast Guard. So. I think by this time, I didn't give a shit. I just want to get out of Dodge, right? Because Honolulu is not my favorite place, right? Right. Even back then. And uh, so <laughs> so I go down to Pier 4, and I walk, and I'm looking pretty scruffy because now I've been sleeping in Almohanna Beach Park for a week, right? And the Coast Guard guy look, takes one look at me. He says, you know where this ship's going? I said, I don't care. He says, it's going, yeah. to, he says, it's going to Southeast Asia. And me and my naive... I was naive, right? I'm thinking, oh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Bangkok, all these exotic places right, right, right. I always heard about where the girls are pretty. And, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a young man, right? right, I, was, right. I was 23 years old, right? I was like, yeah. But, uh, 
He says, it's going to South. I said, I don't care. He said, well, okay, sign right here. He says, you got to go out to Pearl Harbor to get on this. This is where the ship is moored at Pearl Harbor. And that didn't even register then. I was thinking, well, Pearl Harbor, it's a harbor. Right, right, right. You know, I knew, I knew the historical significance of Pearl Harbor, but I didn't realize. I thought maybe all the ships were out there, right? You know? Right, right. And I knew about Honolulu Harbor or you know, Sand Island or any of that bullshit, right? You know, I, just, <laughs> I got on a bus and I went out there, right? You know, and right. they went in and he says, okay, you got to take the shuttle. They had, used to have a, now they got a causeway to Ford Island, but back then they had like a shuttle boat take the tourists to the Arizona Memorial yep, and yep. drop, if you're going to a ship, they drop you off in another part. And I'm walking down the quay and then there's this ship. Enid Victory is the name of the ship. What was it? It was named Enid Victory. Enid Victory. And it was a moth, it had been a mothballed victory ship from World War II. And the, uh, the Columbia Steamship Company had a contractual agreement with, uh, with, a. Uh, Defense Department to provide uh, logistics and haul freight. They got the they got the the Victory ship for a dollar a year, but they had to bring the boilers up and the safety equipment up and man it, and then they would get so much per ton to haul haul freight to Vietnam, because we we didn't the United States didn't have enough um, um, freighters and on commercial you know shipping. To, to, to all to to really take care of Vietnam, right? To all the crap that they sent over there, right? And bulldozers and whatever else, tanks and airplanes and fuel, and they spent so much money on that war. It's all about the money, baby. When did you find out you're going to Vietnam? When? No, so I'm walking down the quay there, and I see I see the end of victory, and that's the that's the ship I'm going to be on, and and the fantail is a big red flag hanging down. Now I was in the Coast Guard, so I know what that red flag means. It means ammo. Explosive ordnance. And I thought, oh my God, I'm on an ammo ship to Vietnam. But I already signed the paper. I already signed the paper. I already signed the papers. I already signed the damn papers. And I, I, at this point, I said, oh, well, I'm against the war, but uh, I'll just go along as a witness. I, just, I told God, all right, Lord, forgive me. I'm just in a witness. I'm a witness to this, what's going on. Right. I'll give you the testimony. Anyway, so I got on a damn thing. Plus, I was hungry, and I was broke, and I was tired of sleeping, and I don't want a beach park. So here I go. Got how, on board. How long of a trip was that? Well, uh, I think it took like nine days or something. I, I kind of lost. It's been a long time ago. Yeah. 50, 60. What's that, 60 years? No. Oh. It's 1969, and now it's 70 would be 50 years, right? 70 would be 50 years. 52 years ago. Wow, man. It's incredible. Right. And um, <laughs> so I think it took, took it like nine days or something. Those things don't go real fast. Nine knots. I was just thinking it's pretty fast. Nine, like, <laughs> knots. nine knots, right? Right. And uh, But it was like a lake. Wow. I mean, you could have water skied to Vietnam. Just scored the, the weather biggest, perfectly. The biggest wave I saw all the way across was probably two feet. Wow. And then we got where we were going. What time of year was that? Uh, maybe May. Wow, just a, really lucky on the weather, huh? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it was just what it was. You know, I didn't know any different. You wow. know what I mean? It's yeah. like uh, we got we got where we were, and then we anchored, 
in this place, and uh, we had to wait to offload. And they didn't have a dock you could tie up to. They they sent LCMs, which are like those, like the the fish farm got those. Oh yeah, craft. oh like those landing craft. Like those landing craft, they'd send those out, and when they all and they sent out uh, what they call rocks, which is Republic of Korea soldiers, to be the stevedores unload us. Wow. Now because of South Korea being next to China, right? You know, and the whole political, geopolitical thing about South Korea and China and all this. They could not be, the rocks couldn't be combatants in Vietnam. But they served, they worked as basically as laborers. They, they, the South Korean government actually farmed out part of their military to work as basic laborers to the United States government. Wow. But they couldn't be combatants. They couldn't go up in the hill and start shooting Viet Cong and stuff, right? But they were there, like I said. Isn't that amazing that you did everything to not go to Vietnam, and you still actually even ended up there? It's, um, that's, that's what makes the interest, and it's absolutely the truth, right? I mean, I mean, what, see, when I went to Coast Guard, the Vietnam really wasn't an issue, but you could see it on the horizon. See, it was coming. And I, I was such a screw-up when I was in high school that I knew I wasn't going to go to college. I just didn't have the grades to do it wasn't that I wasn't intelligent. It's just I didn't give a fuck, you know I mean? Totally. It yeah. was all about drinking and chasing girls when I was in high school. Per- perfectly understandable. Yeah, so that's all, that was my agenda. Right. You know, I mean, uh, so anyway, uh, I knew I wasn't going to go to college, and I knew that something was coming down the line. You could see it if you, if you paid attention to the news, you know. They could see this thing happening, right? And uh, that's why I went, to, I mean, I just couldn't see myself in a, in a rice paddy shooting at some guy I don't even know when I could be driving a boat. Right. No, I get it. So when you were offloading there, did you have to work? I mean, like, no, did you get I, hazard pay or did you get the hell oh, out we, of there? How got, did that work? We got 10% dangerous cargo pay from the day I left Honolulu. When we got 100 miles from the coast of Vietnam, our pay went up 100%. Wow. So they paid double. They paid double. But we didn't have to unload. We didn't do anything. I mean, we basically stood our watches and did what we what our normal job was on the on the ship, right? And we got what well, we had port and starboard. So one day, half the crew could go ashore, and then the next day, the, the other half of the crew. It's called port starboard liberty, right? You know. So you could go ashore, and you know. So, but we were there 14 days. We had we had problems with the boilers. It was a steamship, right? So at one point, they actually put it on all these uh, Vietnamese welders and pipe fitters that came on board and fixed some of the pipes that had, were screwing up and leaking and all this stuff while we were in port. And that was a little spooky because then they came up with a launch and all these, about 20, 20, got, 20 of these Vietnamese guys. Got, and you don't know if one of them is a, is a Viet Cong plant and maybe he's got a thing full of dynamite that's going to blow the whole thing. You know what I mean? It's like right. yeah, these guys, because uh, you always hear about you know, like the GIs would be in some bar in Saigon and some gal would come down on a, on a Honda 50 and throw a hand grenade inside the bar. And you know, there's all that, that kind of stuff going. This was, 69 was probably the hottest year of activity. I mean, they had the Tet Offensive in, in the spring of 68, but 68, 69, 70, were, that, that, that was going to gangbusters. The war was like nuts, you know. And wow. It, we pulled out at a certain point, and then it tapered off, and then they, they dropped the ball, and they were taken over in two days or something by him. Kind of like the Afghanistan recently. 
Yeah, it didn't end so well, did it? No. 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 People it's... hanging on the helicopters as they left the roof, right? You know, Ugh. You've probably seen the images of that. Yeah, you know, I have. It's historical Shocking, yeah. yeah. Wow, to think you were there, too. Like, so... Was there any hairball moments? Like, was there any fighting nearby when you were offloading well, or anything? It would be the equivalent, literally the equivalent of being anchored in Kailua Bay. And at night, there'd be firefights in Holuoloa. Ooh. I mean, so not, I that, have, not I that far away. I didn't have anything whistle past my head, but you knew it was up there. It was happening, you know. Wow. And uh, the first thing they did when we dropped anchor, they they came out with a launch, and these army guys came on with cases and cases of these concussion grenades. So right about just before sunset, they would drop randomly, not like every thirty. You know, you do it randomly because that though you can't really do, time it. Time it. So randomly, they would drop a concussion grenade over the side. So, with the idea being, well, if there was any enemy frogmen going to put some kind of mind or something to blow the blow it up, that is crazy. Well, so you, you got to imagine we're we're carrying ammo. We didn't unload the first. We're we're carrying right explosives, like tons of ammo, tons. Right. So we're not. We're, we we didn't unload the first couple of days. So we're, we're sitting there. If 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 they had lit us up, right? If we blew up. Every, everything in the harbor would have, would have taken a douche, right? I mean, it would have been... What, what I find incredible is you set off grenades around the boat. There was no, like, potential impact of that setting off no, anything else? No, not really. Not through a... I mean, a concussion grenade, if you, it would blow your eardrums out if it, if it landed five, six feet from you. But it, it wouldn't you know, come through the steel and light off everything we got inside, no. But you didn't, you, didn't have to, you didn't have to worry about any structural damage from a concussion grenade or anything like that? No, <laughs> apparently not. They did it. They did it, huh? Yeah. And they would just drop them all around the boat randomly? Yeah. They said all night doing that. After, after a couple hours, you get used to it. You just fall asleep. Duh. <laughs> like, you would be... What did that... Like, was your bunk below water? Could you no, hear no, like no, that? no. That's the cool thing about... Yeah, I've been in play... We talked about bunks being down. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, don't yeah. have a porthole or anything. No, we had... We were on, a, we were on O1 deck, which is the main deck. Our, our, our birthing area where we had... I think we had six of us in one room. But it was spacious, and we had a couple of ports, and you know, fresh air coming in, and all that, you know. Wow, man, that's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So, you're in there for 14 days, right? You finally get out of there. Yeah, we leave. Yeah. And then where do you go? Do you go back to Honolulu? Or you go somewhere else? No, we went. Uh, I think the first place we went, and I, I actually I get this part of the the story screwed up because we did go to Manila, and then we went to Taiwan, the island of Formosa. Yeah, wow. And we were there. We were in Taiwan like days. I don't know how many how many days. Six, seven, eight days, something like that. We were waiting for something. We had to take cargo we had to pick up. The cargo we picked up was basically United States personnel's, like that were like embassy people and people were stayed like at the Taiwan embassy and people, military people that they're. They're cycling out of there, and they're bringing their personal belongings back. In other words, they, they've been in, say, a Marine. Yep. A Marine lieutenant's been at the embassy in, in, in Taipei for two years. Now he's cycling back. He's going back to the mainland, right? Okay. And he's got personal property, right? So they'll ship his stuff back. So we wait, have to wait for everybody to get their stuff. We came back light, really light. I mean, you know, really light. And a couple cars, we took some cars on board and some containers of stuff and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, when we left 
when we finally left that part of the, the world, heading back, we did the Great Circle route because the next stop was Seattle. We did the Great Circle route. If you look at that, it goes right across the face of Japan. And off the coast of Japan, we went, got into a, a, a typhoon, the remnants of a typhoon. Whoa. Like, with like 30-foot seas. And we're, we're light. They actually had to take on, they take, you take on, you know. Um, like ballast water. Ballast water and stuff, yeah. right? You know, fill the ballast tanks. It gets you down. But boy, that, now that was a ride. In an old, in a, in a how ship, long, how a long ship. did that last? Well, we were in that crap for a couple of days, maybe I don't know, thirty-six hours yeah. until it kind of petered off, and then. But for a while, for a full day, we were in thirty-foot seas, and it was a following sea. And uh, I remember going back. They have this deck above the old one deck is the main deck, and above that there's another deck, in the back part of the vessel. And I climbed up there, and I was hang- very on the very stern, hanging on to the the railing right and I'm probably 25 26 8 feet off the water right and as we go down I'd look up at the top of the waves and like a third like a third of the wave would roll whoa roll down it didn't, didn't come I didn't get wet or anything but right. but it was just like and then you you know like that's when you're down in the trough right and then when the wave passes then you go up because the waves are going faster than we were so you're going like this, and you're basically, the waves are coming, like coming home from OTEC in a, in a skiff. Right, right, right. You know, on a bad got day. The, got a big following sea. Yeah, you know. And, you know, so you're doing this, and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it was pretty wild. I thought, I thought to myself, you know, when we were on Maui, right, and all my surfing buddies and everything, we, you know, after surfing, we'd sit around and smoke some weed and talk about, yeah, get some plywood, and we'll nail it together, and we'll build a trimaran, and we'll take our surfboards, we'll go down to South Pacific. And I'm thinking, it's that pipe dream, right? Right, Liter- right? Literally, right? Yeah, yeah. And we're thinking, and I'm thinking to myself while I was out there hanging onto that railing, looking at these oceans, I said, one of these plywood pieces of junks <laughs> I'm thinking about building, right, would Fuck last that. about five minutes in this shit, you know? <laughs> right. That'd be it. Right. You'd, all you would be is floats them on the water. Right. Yeah, no, it's, oh, I know. All those home builds seem like a good idea until you meet something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, fuck. I can't believe you're going to skip over that story. That's amazing. Well, I mean, yeah, I thought, you know, but I, I, I don't know what your agenda was. You to yeah, I don't in. have any agenda. I, I thought I was, you were going to get into fishing. Or well, well, I want to talk fishing, but we kind of, you know. Yeah, okay, well. Well, I mean, I've, that's sort of, I mean. I, I mean, I want to talk fishing, but I kind of like the whole fishing life. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, you asked what led up to it. And yeah, that's, that's, well, totally. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, yeah. wow. So I, yeah, so I, you know, fast forward, here I am back in, in, in now in Kona, right? In Kona. Did you get off in Seattle? Got off in Seattle. Though they, the voyage officially ended, right oh, okay. there, you know, and then you could sign back on, but I was over it. You know, what, if you don't mind me, like, would that have been good pay? Like after that, would that? Have... I look back on it, you know, and I think uh, when I got mustered off the ship, of course, I spent some money while I was on there because we go up uptown, right? You got to hit the bars, hit the bars, and yeah, the, yeah. and the, go visit the ladies and stuff. Yeah, anyway. of course. Anyway, so, but I think, uh, and then you buy stuff at the ship store, you know, this and that, I don't, not much, but yeah, I, I think, I don't know, if I, I, I never sat down to really think about how many days it was totally, but I think I was making 50, 60 bucks a day 
or maybe more. I don't know. Yeah. Which, which back then. It's good money. Yeah, it was not bad. Maybe I was making more than that. I don't, I don't, I don't really remember. I just remember for, for doing, you know, basically you got a free place to live. You got free food, three meals a day. You know what I mean? It was like you didn't have any overhead. Right. So when you got off, you get a check for, you know, $1,600, $1,800 or whatever it was, right? Minus, I mean, they took off, you know, what you, you, you get an advance when you go to port, right? Right. You know, you give me a couple hundred dollars, I'm going to go uptown, right? You know right, what I mean? Right. It's like, but whatever is, and they take taxes out too, right? So that was, that was net after taxes and Social Security and all that shit, right? Yep. You know, it's like, and I didn't care. I mean, it was just, I was just glad to be back on soil, you know? I mean, not, <laughs> not necessarily land so much, just being away from, that whole craziness, right? Yeah, man, that is crazy. The thing I saw was, you know, when you walk, when they go ashore, and like when I was in Vietnam, we walk through this big field before you go through a military gate to get out, out into this town. Yep. Right? There was this field about the size of a football field full of brand new heavy equipment. I'm talking like road graders, front end loaders, backhoes, bulldozers, brand new. They're painting army, army pea green or whatever that color, army color is, right? But they were like brand new Caterpillars, John Deere's and stuff like that, right? And each one of those machines is about tens of, you know, 50,000. Yeah, yeah, a lot, lot of money. Right, a lot right, of money yeah. just sitting there. And you know, all that stuff got left behind. Oh, totally. And what I saw is, it's just a huge waste of money, Right. And so, I, you know, I mean, uh, I don't get political, but, you know, I mean, uh, even Eisenhower was a five-star general, right? After his president, when he, when he got stopped being president, he, he gave his last speech to Congress. He warned about the industrial military complex. He says, that's the biggest thing we got to be worried about, not the Soviets or the Chinese or it's like the industrial military because they, you know, they, they'll, they'll create wars to spend money, you know, so the right. government spends money. Yeah, well, that's. I think you know, we see that over and over again, oh, don't we? Yeah. Look at all the weapons they left in Afghanistan recently. Oh, you know, well, well, the quarter of a million, quarter of a million M16s or whatever they have. You know, I mean, shocking. They, well, the only personal experience I actually really have with it is when I went to Tarawa, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, yeah, it's historical. Yeah. Yeah. So you that know, was even worse than Iwo Jima. You know. I didn't realize how bad Tarawa was until I actually saw a documentary recently right. on Red Beach, you mm -hmm. know, because I, I knew from being down there it was bad because the Marines still go there uh, to this day right. every year looking for the missing Marines. Like, right. um, you know, like a, on one of the one of the searches, actually, when I was there, they uh, had just found like an 800 pound bomb underneath the schoolhouse where if the thing had gone off, it would have just like annihilated the whole Right. You know, the whole school thing. But what's crazy there is that to this day, when the U.S. got out, right, they took all that over. Mm -hmm. They still use scrap material. I have a uh, I have a fishing lure that they used to scrap material left over from the war effort. Mm -hmm. They dug these big trenches when it was time to get out. And because mm -hmm. it would be cheaper for the U.S. to leave it behind, they dug these big holes in the ground, mm -hmm. just dumped everything in it and then backfilled it over, even like a full like they had stories of like full like uh, big like fuel trucks, you know, like mm -hmm. the uh, tractor trailer fuel trucks. Mm -hmm. They had stories of taking those and just like driving them straight into the ocean with the idea just that nobody could like use it. 
Like, well, how wasteful is all that, you can, know? Wait, if you talk about pollution, I mean, I was getting kind of off, off long, but just, just, and I've thought about it for years and years and years and years. In World War II, you think of all the ships that were torpedoed or blown out of the water. They were carrying bunker oil and luber oil and diesel. Fuel. Oh, yeah. And airplanes crashing in the ocean with fuel. How much fuel during World War II was emptied into the oceans back then? Right. We're talking about pollution now. Oh, yeah. I mean, the f- a, lot of those, a lot of those vessels, World War II vessels, were bunker sea, which is nasty shit. I mean, it's thick. Crude. Yeah, crude. It's basically crude oil. It's one step above crude oil. Right. They have to, in order to use that to keep the vessels, I mean, they have to preheat that. There's what they call preheaters on right. a steamship, right? They have to heat that up to the point where it actually catch on fire. You can, you can stick a match in it, it won't catch on fire. Right. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. yeah it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy stuff how they like, uh, how that whole works after like break down the viscosity so they can even burn it. It's like, right. yeah, it's. Pretty wild how that works on the big ships. Yeah, they heat, they preheat it. They put it through co- uh, compressed air, and they have like injectors. And they basically, it's it, it, from crude oil. It's almost a mist when it goes into the the furnace. It's amazing. Yeah, instant. Yeah. But they need to get your BTUs out of it, right? Yeah, I'm sure the uh, I'm I'm sure the overall environmental impact of wars is not good, mm. especially not for the ocean. You think about all the shit that goes, you know. And it, well, how about even like today? And, and some people instantly argue like, oh, you got to train, you got to practice. But like, um, I've found like, uh, have you ever seen those boat drones? You ever seen one of those? Mm, no, I believe that they use for target practice. Yeah, they use them for target practice. You know, I found one of those and the thing was so full of bullets and stuff and it was like half submerged and... And I was thinking to myself, like... It's just floating around. It had Mai Mai Yeah, like, it? It, nah, it didn't have any... It didn't... It, I, don't, I don't remember catching a Mai Mai off it or anything. I, but I remember, like, when I first got up to it, I go, what the hell is this? You know, because it just looks like... I mean, the thing's probably over $100,000 or something. Right. Oh, sure. it, it's like this badass-looking boat. And I think they probably... The idea was it, it... They thought it totally sank, right? But it hadn't. But I just thought, like, it was so riddled with holes and, like... Hmm. Like, it... Like... How many explosives did that thing have fired at it in the name of practice? And then how much of that other stuff, like how many fish get killed around those things? And like, like, I don't know that it doesn't seem like people factor that in for some reason. I don't know. I, I think about that all the time. Yeah, every time you see those submarine movies where the guy, they, they drop the depth charges over, you know, and it goes down by the submarine and explodes. Well, how many, how many fish died when that happened? Right. Oh, I mean, well, a lot. Blowing the reef up, right? Yeah, like a lot. Dri- driving those big landing craft right on top of the reef. All that coral just just crushed down. Just hey, oh we, yeah. Hey, we're not worried about the coral. We got to go kill some son of a bitches. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Oh, it's, uh, it's sad but true, right? <laughs> it's, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess pretty good. Well, I think overall, honestly, we are doing a better job about the environment. But if you think about the wars, we don't take very good care of the environment. No, not we at haven't. all. At no. all. No. It's very sad, actually. So. So anyway, I'm back in Kona and I, I uh, work in construction and I, I, I just go down to the dock and I go down to the Kailua Pier on the weekend and watch these guys weigh fish. And like, damn, you know, that looks like fun to me, you know, and I, Walk, talk to a couple captains, and they say, hey, you know, hey, I, I know all about boats and stuff, you know, and 
I'll work for free on the weekend. You know, if you just take me out with you, you know, I'll be an extra crewman or something. And it was, I just got a lot of, lot of negative, uh, no, nah, that's okay. Right on. Oh, you know, thanks a lot for offering, but you know, you know, it's like, and I've had that when I was running a boat, people walk up behind the boat. Oh, and they, yeah. walk, they, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all this, you know, and you know, actually you're not even looking for anybody. So it's, so I understand. Right. I've been on both, both ends of the spectrum there, but, um, so I got kind of frustrated, you know, and I said, I guess the only way I'll ever get to fish is go, go get my own boat. So, and, and I was working on this job, Little Ukulani Village up, uh, right up, right, right up down the Plani Road, you know, where the, where the pedestrian bridge goes across. Yep. Anyway, we're working yes, up there. And we were building, uh, this a couple buddies and I, we, we were on a roof crew. We, we actually framed the roof put the sheeting on the roof and all that stuff and the fascia boards and all that. I was like on my 60th roof. Oh, God. I was getting, you must have been pretty over it. Uh, pretty over it, right? <laughs> it, 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 here's the thing. From that vantage point, you look right down on Honokahau. And every morning I climb up on the roof to do this mundane job that I've done over and over and over again, right, and watch these boats go out like this. Damn. Man, that's, so one morning I'm up there climbing up on the roof, and it's like 10 o'clock in the morning. Maybe it wasn't even 10 yet. Maybe it was 9. We started at 7 anyway. So I, I, I climbed off the roof and took my tools and threw them in back in my truck. And my buddies, we, I knew very well, right? We were really good friends, and we were, always worked together. Where the hell are you going? He said, I'm going fishing. <laughs> they said, you can't go. You can't do that. I said, watch me. I just drove downtown and got a newspaper. In those days, Westwide newspapers three days a week. It was Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or something like that. It's a little thing, it was like seven, eight pages. Westwide wasn't much of a paper in those days. Yeah, it's not much of a paper now. No, it's not. <laughs> so, so I got the paper and I, I, I went to this coffee shop. There used to be a coffee shop down there by, uh, kind of basically where that dolphin spit place is. It was a bar called, uh, maybe you remember this. I remember the office. The office bar. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right, right next to that, going towards Firestone, was a, uh, a coffee shop, you know, where you get coffee, eggs, or whatever, you know, hamburgers, whatever. So I went in there, I ordered a cup of coffee, and reading the, the looking at the classified and looking for boats, and it says, uh, 17-foot glass par uh, with 50-horsepower Johnson motor and Calkins trailer or I don't know if it was Calkins or Shoreline or whatever it was $2,500 I called this guy up and I said he answered the phone he said, I said I see this paper this boat for sale in the paper is it still available and he said yeah I said I said can I take a look at it he says when do you want to look at it I said right now he says well how about like uh, you meet me at the ramp at City Refuge at uh, 1 o'clock Okay, so I go down the ramp at City Refuge. That's what they call two-step, you know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. There was that little funky-ass ramp, right? Yeah, yeah. It's at still, low tide, it's, it's yeah. Still most, there. Even high tide, you got to walk yeah, the boat it's out. it's still there, but it's a fucking mess. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, you yeah, got to yeah. walk the boat out, and it's only only a boat so big can take. You know, you can't yeah, put yeah. a big. You they launch. They launch the kayak. You couldn't put. You couldn't put a twenty-five foot rad in there. No way. Right. Too shallow. Yeah. But anyway, we we actually had to launch it and kind of walk the boat out so far and then drop the motor and start it that way and he had a, a little cooler on there like a 64 quart cooler and a, a rubber made bucket 
like a laundry bucket with some hand line and an ono lure and a gaff and a club. And we go out and they turn north, going along that little lava cliff just north of City of Refuge. We weren't, we weren't even gone 15 minutes. And he had like these big 84 rubber bands, you know, five or six of them on his hand line. Just blew off the cleat, right? Pow! And he stops the boat, runs back, and puts some gloves on, pulls in this Ono and gaffs it and brings it on board. It's like a 40-pound Ono. I said, sold! <laughs> I didn't think about the price. I, I saw enough. Right there, I said, I, I'm done. I'm sold. You got your money. I'll get your money tomorrow morning, right? You know? <laughs> oh. Oh, that's man. awesome. So I got that boat, and then I, I, when I actually got possession of the boat, and that Saturday, the two guys I was working with, the three of us went fishing, and we trolled around and trolled around, and everything. they had trolling a hand line and a spinning rod with a king-king on it or something, right? That's all I had, right? They coming into K.O. Bay after about four hours, you know, and we're coming right in the bay, right? I mean, we must have been in 20 fathoms of water. Boom, we got an owner. Same way on the hand line. And I was so excited, I didn't even put gloves on. And I was like, oh, I was just, holy shit, I got this thing. I was just like, yeah, you know, I got this thing. And it's pulled the line and it just burnt the shit out of my, I mean, you know, you ever had to, you know, yeah, like, yeah. burn, I mean, white flesh, you know, burn. And I didn't give a shit anyway. I mean, it didn't, <laughs> didn't even hurt until afterwards, after I got the fish in. And it got this nice, like, 30-pound Ono and put it on a boat. And we were jumping up and down like crazy people, right? And it was success. On my first trip out, I caught an Ono. This is cool. This is Awesome. Oh, man, I was stoked. That's how I got... Then that was just progressed from there. You know. When did it go from, I'm becoming a full-time fisherman? When did it go from a hobby to, this is what I'm doing for a living? Well, uh, so I I did it kind of just as a hobby then. And then in, in, in next summer, was the summer of 76, 1976, and I decided... And I knew, now I'm reading all of Rizzuto's articles and everything and trying to, everybody I knew that fished are trying to talk to them and like, you know, there's a lot of like weekend warriors, you know, and talking to guys and this and that. <clears throat> and so I knew that the summer was when the tuna bought, you know, bit and the marlin bite better and then eat, everything bites better in the summer, right, than say right now. Right. And, um. So I decided I was going to get myself laid off of my construction job so I could collect unemployment and go fish. So that was my plan. So the summer of 76, I, what I did was I realized I, was, I didn't have a, a bimini top or anything because I was getting French fried out there. and I just, I, I'll fish. Sunburnt every day. Yeah, I, I, I'll fish every other day. So I fished every other day that summer and started, started catching some real fish, right, you know, and caught my first marlin. My first big ahi, you know, caught my first marlin single-handedly. I'd never even seen a marlin, never witnessed a marlin being caught. How'd that go? Uh, it was a, it was a, uh, pardon the French, but it was a clusterfuck, but I got it. <laughs> 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 everything that went wrong, went wrong, but I still got the fish. Like everything that could have gone wrong went totally wrong. I, I mean, it's a litany of, of like, how did this happen? <laughs> first of all i at that particular time it was still early in the summer and i was i was spooked about going offshore by myself 
You know, okay. like going past, you know, I'd stay in 40. I'd go back and forth and catch Ono, and I got got that down pretty good, right? Yep. And I bought a rod and reel. I had a, a rod and I had a Penn Senator 12-0 with a fiberglass straight butt and a, like a 130 rod or whatever, 80 rod or whatever it was. And I had an old Penn Senator 12-0 with a wooden butt that I bought from a guy. And it was kind of a beater thing, right? And two lures out, I'm on pine trees, 40, well, I think I was 40 fathoms, you know, point to point. Point to point. Yeah. Uh. And, uh, <clears throat> and the line goes off. I said, oh, that sounds like a big one, right? And I'm looking back at the hole, and the thing is going, ooh, blue smoke's coming out of, the, out of the drag and everything. And I'm over there reeling in the other line, and I'm watching, I'm looking, holy shit, you know, I'm watching this real just like go you know i gotta hurry get this thing and out of the corner of my eye over here i see this big splash 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 oh shit i got a marlin you know so i reel the line in run over there and just as i get over there now i had those rings they got these two little rings around the the plates i had two safety lines because i didn't trust that old wooden butt right right so I had one on each side and tied down tight. And just as I got over there, the the wooden butt broke right at the real seat. Oh no! Right at the real seat. Oh, Crack! Bam! It went down and it was landing on the gunnel. But now I got the two safety lines, and the line is still going out the back. And the fish is jumping over there like a three two hundred yards or three hundred yards. <laughs> there, right? And the line is just going like, oh shit! So I unclipped the thing, got it up. Brought it around, got it up where, and I used to have a fish box, and I'm sitting on the fish box, right, driving the boat with, now I don't have any butt. I'm just hanging <laughs> on the reel, and I'm chasing the fish, right? Right. And trying to get a little bit, chase the fish, and I got the, the rod resting on the windshield, right, which the frame for the windshield was extruded aluminum, right? So I'm, I'm just resting there. Okay, what? how am I going to do this? So I had a harness the harness that goes around your, your shoulders, the old style, right, you know? Yep. So I clipped in there. Now I've got I've got the reel hooked to the harness, and I'm hooked to the harness, but I still don't have any butt. So I, I kind of got it down here and got a towel and stuffed it here so it's sharp. I mean, there were still little pieces of wood sticking out of the bottom of the thing, and now i got the rod resting on the windshield, and I'm chasing this fish. And I chase enough that I get like 20 or 30 yards of slack line, and I tighten it up. And then he'd go some more, and I'd go some more, and I'd get some line, and we'd go back and forth, and this and that. And seemed like forever. Next thing you know, this is like at pine trees. After a couple hours, I'm off, you know, top corner of the ground. It's a strong north current that day. I'm out maybe, I don't know, three, 400 fathoms, top corner of the grounds, you know. Still, by this time, it slowed down and kind of, a, you know, had maybe like 300 yards of line out. I, I had about 300 yards line left. And he's just towing the boat sideways. I got, I got the motor in neutral. And he's towing, literally towing the boat sideways north with the current too, right? Yeah. And I said, well, this son of a bitch has got to give up soon, someday. And I don't know, we got further up the line. I don't know, maybe we were Makalavain or someplace. I don't know, out there somewhere. And finally I got it up. I was making progress. I got it up and got it up and got it up. Oh, Earlier, a little, little earlier, what happened was because now this rod was a beater anyway. Yeah. But because it was rubbing on the extruded aluminum windshield, right, the, the frame for the windshield, 
it wore all the wrapping on the first guide, first roller guide was gone. So now I got the roller guide going up and down. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> from from the reel to the other, the second guide, right? So I had to hold. I had to make sure it wouldn't get back down into the reels. So I had to hold it up. Oh my god! And it was like so. Now I got the no butt. I got the broken. Well, you got guide. a proper clusterfuck on your head. Yeah, right. per, yeah. So then I get anyway. So I get, finally get up there. Get up there. And we're, now it's like I'm three hours into it, right? And I'm exhausted. And if, I think the fish was pretty exhausted. I got it up where I could see it, and, and I, okay, I got it. Now I get up to the leader. I got to do something with. It. I realize, okay, now, all right, what am I going to do? So I get the safety lines, hook it onto the reel again, grab the leader, and start leadering the fish up, right? Well, about halfway up, I look over and I had pigtail swivel. The loop in the leader had somehow gone like this and was no longer connected to the pigtail swivel. Now, I'm holding on to a leader. It's not connected to anything. Oh, no. And I got a 356-pound marlin on. That's what it ended up weighing. Yep. So, <laughs> panic city, right? So, like, so now I, you, can't, you can't let go of it now. I can't, well... I was standing right in the corner where the cleat was. So I did a figure eight on the cleat, rehooked it up to the swivel, and undid the figure eight and continued. But when I looked over, and my heart almost fell out of my chest when I looked over and saw that, that thing wasn't even connected. Wow. Good thing the fish was as tired as I was at this point, I think. <laughs> so I got him up. Now I, I, put, I got him up and I put a stick gaff in him. But I'm, now I'm holding the stick gaff. I had a pretty good headshot too. It was like right up underneath the eyeball, someplace, you know, towards, you know. And I'm holding the thing, and the thing is undulating. It was tail, it's like going like this. And I'm holding on to the thing, and it's doing this, and I'm afraid if I let go with my right hand, because I'm right handed, I'm holding it with my left, to grab the bat and crack it, that it'll, it'll pull the gaff out of it, you know. Right. So I'm just hanging on. So I'm trying to figure out when, when can I get a break where I can hit him. So I'm there doing like this, and my, my solar plexus or muscles are so sore because they're like, Ugh. the fish was working me, right? Right. And I was exhausted emotionally and physically in every other way, and, you know. Probably sunburnt. Yeah, sunburnt. And then I see this skiff coming around, and it's going around looking at me like, you know, makes this lazy circle, and finally it comes up, and they reel the lines, and they come over and say, you need a hand? <laughs> I said, shit, yeah. <laughs> Okay, let me get this. So they, they rid the lines in there. They rid the lines in So did you get to weigh it downtown? Oh, I got pictures. Yeah, I weighed it at Kailua Pier. Oh, you did get to weigh it at the pier? Yeah. Okay. And, and oddly enough, there used to be uh, George Parker's brother, Phil Parker. I don't know if you remember him or not. Oh, sorry. Yeah, try and talk into the mic there. I'm losing oh, okay. you a little bit. All right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Phil Parker was George Parker's brother. Okay. Yep. Marlon's uncle. All right. And he used to have a radio show, like uh, 
talking about the fish that were caught yesterday. Oh, cool. On, the, on our little radio station here, a little AM radio station here in Kona. Yep. And uh, I got the biggest fish of the day that day. Oh, awesome. Oh. That must have felt good. That, I mean, I was like, you know, from zero to nothing. You know, I mean, it's like I pushed into <laughs> 15 minutes of fame, right? You know? Yeah, heck yeah. <laughs> so, so, so what happened to that fish? Did you sell it? Oh, I, I sold it to, uh, it, there used to be a guy named Jerry Kenny at Volcano Wild Fish. Okay. Where the old, it used to be located where the Toyota dealership is now. Yep. And uh, after he retired, Suisan took that facility over, and then they, they stopped, and then they tore it down and built the Toyota dealer. Gotcha. But I sold it to Jerry for 20 cents a pound. Was that a good price then? That was the average price. Average price. Yeah. And I had uh, to repair that rod cost me $90. I, I lost money on the deal. <laughs> I said, I don't think it's far fishing for marlin's the way to go here. You know, I, I think a lot of people lose money on the marlin fishing deal. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I knew a lot of the old the guys that were like commercial fishing, even the weekend warrior commercial fishing back in the. They said they used to call them donkeys. Yeah, they don't want anything to do with them. No, they said you lock the drag up and break them off. I know a lot of guys that are still like that. They don't want anything to do with them. A lot of skiff guys, but the thing is, the price has actually gone. Well, now it's way up on them. You, now. They get, if you had a 200 pound Marlin right now, you get $2.50 a pound for it. Oh, you get more than that, probably. Well, oh, I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. just saying. Right. No, it's four or $500 a little different than 60 or 70. Yeah, no, right? it's come up a lot. You know, like uh, there was uh, there was kind of like one week where we, we, we came down a little bit, but for the most part, man, it's been like three fifty four bucks most of the year. That It's really interesting because. What we're seeing right now is what fish prices look like without imports because right. of the pandemic. Right. Right. You're getting to experience what what you would be getting for your fish right. if you weren't, uh, you know, if we weren't just flooded with imports all the time. So it's actually kind of a neat. Tombo's fifteen fifteen ninety five retail. It's, it, it, well, there aren't any Tombos around though either. Well, well somebody's got them. I bought some the other day. Well, I, I'm. They're probably bringing it from Honolulu or something, right? Long well, there line. must be some around, but long line. But I, long but I mean, I, unless I mean, maybe somebody's, maybe somebody's getting them, and I don't, and I don't, and I don't know. But I mean, there hasn't really been a great tombow run for a couple of years. Not like not like the no, old days, yeah, yeah. you know. So, uh, for those of you listening at home, to the uh, a tombow out here is an albacore. Um, yeah, no, the, the 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 tonnage price too on like uh, the tonnage price on albacore is really high this year. I, I, I don't want to misquote it, but I know that like uh, thirty six hundred dollars or something. Like yeah, time. it might have even been higher. It was like I know like the tonnage price for uh, freezer big eye was like eight, so that's like two bucks a pound on freezer big eye. So like, yeah, I think it was pretty high. Somebody maybe can chime in on that, but I I, I heard reports that it was pretty high. Well, it's, again, it's just, you know, the... Supply and demand. Yeah, the, the, it's really neat to see what fish prices are like without imports. I, I, I wonder for... Now, you've been in the fish business a long time. It would be interesting if you just started now. Like, say you just got a skiff now, and you're appreciating all these prices. At some point, most likely, the, the market's going to correct itself, and you might be like, what the hell happened? Because I myself have been through that, but... You know, been doing it long enough where you see the ebbs well, and flows. You the know? last few years when I was running charter boats, I spent time commercial fishing, right? Yeah. A lot of time. But years passed, right? Right. 
And then when I was the last few years that I was running a charter boat, and I'd go and I'd see these guys with these nice 26, 27 foot forces with two 200 horsepower, whatever Yamahas or whatever they got or on the bigger. back. Bigger, yeah. Yeah, and they got you know, and they're all you know, they got really nice electronics and the green stick and this and that. I'm looking. You know, and then they got to have the truck to tow it. I'm, I'm looking at a quarter of a million dollars sitting there, right? You know? No, yeah. And I'm thinking. Easily. I'm thinking. I don't know if I could, if I could have, you know, even with the fish I caught back when the fishing was really good, if I could afford to amortize that investment, fishing locally on, you know, against the, against the island, right? Right. As opposed to, you know, going out and long line coming in with 10,000 pounds or something, right? You know what I mean? Right. Like, the doing what I did back in the day, I, I, was, how, how, I don't know how these guys make it. Except for the price are, are, is different. Than- that, I mean, that seems to be the only thing that really, you've got, you've got, A, you've got some guys that are buoy fishing, and B, the price is just... they got wives with good jobs. And, and they have wives. They, well, you know, they say that, Well, They say behind every great fisherman is a financially successful woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, it takes the pressure off. It. I'd have to. I, I, no, I, I believe. I'm it. sure it does. I. I don't know personally, but. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, you, you create your own pressure, but I'm basically. Um, yeah. If if you know if if you're not all jammed up and I've, I mean if it, the hardest thing to do is catch fish when you're stressed out. Oh. Every time. Yeah. Like, have you ever noticed that fishing, if you really, really need it, it's not going to give it up to you. But then, like, when you're, like, you'll go on runs when everything is going great and it will continue going great. But if you really, really, like, I fucking need this to hit. I need this to hit. Right. I've been there. That's not what it hits, dude. That's like, you don't fish properly, like, with the stress level or whatever the hell. You you can't, you can't even think about what the objective is. Yeah. Exactly. Like you're so stressed about like, oh, don't throw too many anchovies. That fucking case is twenty five dollars or, or whatever. Yeah. No, you definitely fish better when when there's less stress. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So how is it that you ended up from commercial fishing into charter fishing? How did that happen? Well, uh, well, actually, it was it was a, so it was seventy six. I fished that summer every other day, right. On your skiff? On my skiff. Yep. And caught tunas by, by myself, 200-pound tunas by myself, blah, 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 you know, you know, this and that. And got comfortable where I got hooked up to a big fish. I wasn't intimidated. Now I know, okay, this is what you do, blah, 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 and do it right. And so I got my, married my first wife in December of 76. Went on a honeymoon came back and I was in between construction jobs and uh, I was down Cuyahoga Bay and I bumped into a, a, a captain named Del Cannon. I don't know if he was, he was a professional surfer at one time, had his own surf, Del Cannon. surf company. It wasn't Happy Times, was it? No. It was Happy Times. Oh, he, oh, it was Happy Times. It was Happy Times and yeah. then uh, they ended up running the Blue Hawaii Okay. You know, the, the big hatters that was parked out there were kind of where, where Atlantis is parked now. Yep. It was that, he ran that boat. He had his own boat called the Aneta for a long time. It was a 35-foot Bertrand became, uh, what did it become after the Aneta? It was the one that that 
that America uh, that uh, United Pilot owned. Uh, Gus Sellers ran it for a while. Different people ran that boat for a while. Rusty Real Yarder. class? No, it was an th- open 35-foot Bertram with no, no sliding doors. Uh, was, what the hell was that called? It was... It was uh, oh, Kona Rainbow? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, that turned into Kona Rainbow. Dell owned that. Dell and his wife, Alice, owned that boat for a long time. Okay, yeah. And, um, but anyway, so Dell, Dell had been a, a surfer in California. He, he, he Older. He's like 10 years older than I am. He used to be in Bruce Brown, you know, Endless Summer. Bruce Brown, the guy that made all the surf films. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I well, don't know, Del, but I mean, I know, I know his work. Del, Del was the guy on the, riding a surfboard with the camera taking a picture. Oh, but not really? only he was on the same wave that the guy was on riding the wave, but he was on that wave, but he was holding the camera. That's amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah, the that's guy pre- was, he was, that's, I mean, that's who the camera should have been pointed at. They made a movie. He was in a, one of Bruce Brown's movies where he was the first surfer to ever surf Japan, Del Cannon. Wow. So he was in the older, older stratosphere of professional, big-time, well-known surfer guys, right? But he lived in Kona, and uh, he had gotten into fishing and got his captain's license. And he knew me because he see me launch my boat and everything all the time. You know, and he said, hey, what are you doing, blah, 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 yeah, yeah. And he said, hey, I got my captain's license. I'm running this boat. I need a deckhand tomorrow. You want a deckhand for me? And I said, sure, because I wasn't doing anything, right? So I went and crewed for him, and it went good. And the next day, yeah, you want to go again? And the next day, I went again. And after about three or four days, he says, well, you got a full-time job if you want it. And I said, well, I don't know. Let me go. I just got married. Let me go home and talk to my wife, you know, and see what she said. I said, this is what I always wanted to do. I said, money's not good. The money sucks. I make nothing compared to what I made as a carpenter, right? But I want to do it. I want to do it all my life. She says, go ahead, do it. So I went down, yeah, I'll take the job. So I spent a year, just shy of a year, fishing with him on the happy times. And then if we didn't have a charter, I'd take my skiff out. Because it was really cool because it, you're out there and you're fishing three or four days in a row on a charter, right? And you can see what birds are here, this and that, the current's going this way. You kind of already got, you already done your research, right? So the next day off, if you don't have a charter, you jump on my skiff, and I go, right? Oh, yeah. Got it. Okay, one step up, rather than right. just coming into it cold after Totally night. blind. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, that, that's what happened, and I got, got my captain's license, and Kelly Greenwell offered me a job running his boat, and I did that for a year, and, and then uh, reality set in about I'm leaving too much money on the table from my construction. Did that reality set in, or is those the words of your wife? No, that was a, you know, I mean, you know, I can, I can, I can see the tea leaves in the bottom of the cup, right? You know, I mean, it's like, well, it's, it was good. The problem was, see, when I, when I was running that boat, there was only like 18 boats in Kona. Okay. Right? And even though there was 18 boats, there wasn't that, we had a good summer run. Do we, is, does Honokaha Harbor exist at this point yet? Or yeah, no? yeah, it does. Okay. But the, the inner sanctum, not, not. Not the inner sanctum, the, the outer basin. The outer basin. About about where um, about where the Raptor parks. Okay. That yeah. was, that was that was about that was the Malka side of the harbor until seventy nine. Wow. So when I was doing this, it, it was, and the ramp 
was on the Malka side, the end, the end, it came down from Malka going this way. Yep. There's one ramp, the two, two side ramp, you know. Yep. I mean, it was one ramp, but it, but two boat, two boats could go down at one time. Not, not, there wasn't a walkway. Okay. Gotcha. Anyway, and the fuel dock was on the, on the Malka side. Alicana in a four by foot, four by four, I mean, a, a little shack that was about the size of that square. And a little cash register, a little thing, and and then a fuel truck. So you get fueled out right of a fuel truck. It was no in tank fuel, you know, and in that in ground fuel or anything like right. that. Right. You just run the hose down there and stick it in. But um, yeah, so so I anyway, I I uh, I went back to con- went back to construction. Right. As a, I got it. At some point, I want to get my own house. You know what I mean? It's like I'm still renting. So right? we're renting it. Yeah, yeah okay. Like, no, I understand, never, yeah. And, well, see, the other thing, too, is we had the tourist thing. We'd have a really good summer run from, like, the 15th of June to Labor Day. Tourists were, up, you know, you could go fish every day. You have a charter every day. Okay. All right. As soon as Labor Day is over, from Labor Day to Thanksgiving. No one around. Nothing. And then you get a little pop at Thanksgiving. And then nothing, and then the 26th of December, the day after Christmas, they'd show up. And you have a good run through spring break, tourist. Right. But from spring break till the 15th of June, you got nothing. So that, that year I, in 77, I mean 78, I had this boat that I was running for Kelly Greenwell, and I'd take it South Point. I'd make trips to South Point and catch Ono and Mai Mai and whatever else, ahis, whatever I could catch, right, and, and sell them. Yep, that's how I survived. But I, I was going like, man, this, you know, and the, you know, the what carpenters were making, the price has gone. In other words, the wages has gone up, and this and that. I'm looking, oh shit, I'm leaving too much money on the table here, you know. Plus, I didn't have any medical insurance or anything, right? So, I was always a union carpenter. So if I was working, I get medical for my wife and I. You know right. What I mean? No, I think that's a. I think that's a common story even today. I think a lot of guys face that all the time, so right? In '79, I worked on a job, a surfing racket club, the second increment down by Kale. Yep. Worked on that job, and uh, Kelly never got anybody to run the boat. He's just kind of like, oh well, whatever. He's a Greenwell. He has a rancher. You know, it's like wasn't. This guy's other stuff going on. He's got a. You know, it wasn't big priority anyway. Um. So, but that's when uh, guys in Kona about that year, 79, 78, was it, yeah, 78, yeah. That's when they, the guys just started, the, the Kona guys, start, yep. just started learning how to eat kashibi. Was that right? Yeah, they can, you might talk to somebody, oh, no, we don't know that. No, 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 I know I'm intimately. I, but that, those days, I knew every commercial fisherman, skiff fisherman there was in Kona, right? They were they just chased I. I mean, they just porpoise school. The guys in Kona knew how to fish porpoise schools really good, and, and go with a ahiko and drop stone and stuff like that. But nobody was ikushibi until those guys came from Hilo and showed everybody how to do it. Takafuji and Mel Brown and those guys. So, what year was that? Uh, the winter of '78. '78. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. '79. You know, right? They, they came. These guys came from Hilo because nothing was happening over there. And they heard that the guys were catching all these tunas into porpoise school in Kona. So they brought their boats, and they were, that's all they did in, Kona, in uh, 
in Hilo was Ikashibi. Right? Night, so night they, bite. They came over here and started. We we would go down to K. They come into Keoho, right? There were like four or five boats that came over. Well, two or three at the first. Mel Brown and Taka Fujitani came over with her with her radins, right? I just killed them. I mean, they come in with ten a night, and people are going like ten. We don't even have boats that hold ten. You know, right? You know, it's like amazing. Yeah, and, you know, like, how do you do this? You know, blah blah. blah. You know, you, you know, well, this is what you do, right? You know, you get this and you get the lines. You know, this is what the basket looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guys are running out and doing it. And uh, so that that winter, I actually used the boat, Kelly's boat, and went out and started Ikashibian, right? And then how long did it take you before you caught an ahi at night? Not long. Not long, huh? Yeah. But it, then, then uh, so 79, well, 78 is when they first came over to do it. So by that time, we knew the cat was out of the bag. We knew about Ikashibi. And I worked at this 79, worked that year building a surfing racket club. And at the end of the, I told Kelly, I said, this job's coming out, and I want to lease the boat from you for a month. I was going to go Ikashibi from the 1st of December through January, right? <laughs> so I was buying bait and everything. I had bait. I had all kinds of bait frozen and stuff. My friend had, my partner had, my good friend of mine who was going to fish with me. Yep. He had a big chest freezer, and I was buying a pillow. As, as every time I could get a chance, I'd buy $100 worth of pillow and stuff and this and that and getting, never getting ready. And then December 1st came, we started Ikashibi, and right? We we did pretty good. I mean, we we caught not. There might a couple nights we went without catching, but pretty much we caught every night something, at least one. You know, yep. sometimes five or six, right? And big ones too. I mean, one eighties, one nineties, two tens like that. You know, not not one little one eighteens and one twenties like you see now. Yep. You know, all the time, right? It was like fucking gorillas. You know. Big bastards. <laughs> wow. And, uh, well, it's kind of interesting. You don't really even think of too many guys Ikashibiing in the winter anymore. And that used to be a big thing in Hilo, too. And you don't see that many guys actually Shibiing hard at night anymore. Most of the guys are Shibi in the summer. Right. It makes you wonder how many fish get missed. Probably a lot. Yeah. You know, you get, if you get, you get the Apollo going down through the, uh, through the thermocline, you get down there that, you know, where the, especially the big eyes. I caught, I, uh, let's see, November of 1980, I caught a 198-pound big eye in November, late November. Yep. Right outside Cahoe, right on the 1,000. Beautiful fish. Oh, man. Well, that, I, all those big eyes are being left behind there. No that, one's trying that. Well, you've got to be there to do it, right? Well, that's it. Someone's got to try. Yeah. I mean, you got to, I mean, it may take, you know. I, I think, you know, they're, they're there. It, it would take somebody with the right mindset to get back into totally focusing on that is, is the catch. You know what I mean? Like, well, you'd have to have deep pot. You have to say, okay, I'm gonna, this is like going to Vegas and you're going to gamble. And you, like, I got this pound of money here. I'm going to go do it. Hit or miss, I'm going to do this and see. But, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it, right? Like, so, like, like. We know that there's fish on like the 1500, the 2000, right. like, but if you're not out there trying it, who's out there trying it? You know what I mean? Because, and if they're, if they're doing it, they ain't saying shit. They're going, that's the other thing is, is the fishermen now have gotten real cagey. They've gone ninja. 
Well, I think you kind of had to for yeah. self-preservation, right? Yeah, I mean it's very competitive, and yeah, I, the other thing, the other question is the uh, the private fads. I don't know how 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 many or how disruptive they've been in the migratory patterns of the the fish that traditionally used to be here. <sighs> these that's, are, a, that's a good question, right? These are good questions. I, I, I think one of the biggest questions we're really facing right now is how many of the fish just aren't even getting here because they're caught before they ever get here. Like, I caught a tagged fish right. on my last trip, which is the first tagged big guy I've ever caught. I've caught yellows before. And uh, that, one of David Itano's fish, or I mean, uh, was it uh, SPC tag, which is like, uh, oh man, it's Southern or, or the Secretant Pacific Community Tagging Program, and uh, they've been doing it since 2006. Right. And uh, this is the second tag, and they've gotten two of them this year um, from Hawaii, it, it, around Hawaii. Well, both around the cross, to be right, honest, right? right. Uh, mine had traveled 553 miles in a year. And, uh, like maybe it was 14 months, like a year and two months. Where was it originally caught? It was caught, uh, 554 miles Southwest of the cross on a drifting fad. It was like, uh, what is that? What did they say? It was like 12 and 12 North, 164 West, I guess. Um, was it purposely drifting or like it was sooner, a super standard? Yeah. So exactly. So what they've got is with the program, they work with, um, they work with the purse saners, right? Right. So the purse saners let them fish around their fad because they know they're going to tag all of them. And, um, and also it just helps speed up the science that there's just a higher concentration of fish around, uh, around these buoys. Right. And so, uh, they tag them with the idea being that, you know, they're not going to disturb the fish. They're going to tag them, let them go. Uh, but that particular fad that, um, the fish I tagged Mm -hmm. came off of, uh, they actually dispersed it. So meaning that it was outside of their range that they would have chased it. So they hit that one on the way home. Um, so they actually cut the floats off and sank it. So the, the fish that I, I caught wasn't actually around a fad or associated with a fad, but, but when I found it, right, right. So, so it, it was wandering, looking so for it was another wandering, one. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, but the interesting thing about that fish uh, I did actually find another floater on uh, my last trip, but it sucked. Like, uh, it just, there wasn't much on it. I don't mm. know. When we find the fads around the cross, for whatever reason, and I don't know if it's because the fish get there and they're like, see ya, because there's so much feed and life, but very rarely do they ever actually hold, hold anything. Nah, they don't hold shit. Not well, like, the cross is, is the fad. Right, that's the biggest fad around, yeah. right? So... I think a lot of times when they get there, they actually kind of, my, my guess is they bolt. Because if you found that same fad, like, inshore, unless it's just because it's a different current, but if you found that same fad inshore, you'd be filling your boat probably, almost regardless of what size boat you have, you right. know? So uh, I don't think it's a surprise that that other fa- I mean, I don't think that fish was associated with that fad that I found because I, I caught it two days later. But I know for a fact the fad that it, the fish actually came off of uh, was cut off so yeah. and sank. So it wasn't that. But So the question and, and has been for a long time, are a lot of the fish being cut off before they even well, that, ever get here? I, I've got, I got theory to that. You know, I mean, um, and I've, I've watched the fishery 
you know, even if, when I was in construction, even if I took a year off and went construction, you're still paying attention. I'm paying big time attention, right? Because right. it's my it was, you know, I I didn't get a lot of love out of you know being a carpenter, right? I did build my own house, which was a, a plus, but that's but, awesome. But uh, um, but yeah, fishing has been my, you know, that's been the lifeblood of what I my essence of my who you know whatever you know I mean. I, somebody think about me. I'd rather think about me as being a fisherman than a, than a carpenter, right? You know, I mean, carpenter. Was, I would call you a fisherman. It, it, carpenter was a, carpentry was a means to an end. It wasn't wasn't something I wanted to be. You know, like I dream about building houses, right? You know, right. <laughs> it's like you know, I wanted to build my own house. Well, I did that. You know, right? Okay, let's move on. But you dreamed of fish. Yeah, yeah, and 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 think about it, and so, you know, this whole thing about. And talking to the old timers and stuff, and every, you know, Rusty Unger. I don't know if you remember Jimmy yep. and Johnny Unger and those guys. You know, and David Unger's grandfather, right? It's Bob Unger, right? You right. Know? And he used to tell Rusty and Johnny and those guys, "Where'd you go fishing today?" And they they go, "Oh, we went out about twenty, about fifteen miles out." Blah. He says, "I don't. Why are you going way out there?" Well, you know, because you know, he figures maybe go farther out you'll catch more fish you know what i mean just you know fishermen right you right know? so if it's a little slow on the inside let's go farther out right or whatever but he says you're already he says you are already in the middle of the ocean <laughs> you know we're hawaii right you look at right. the chart we're already in the middle of the ocean right he said the fish come to the island you don't have to go out they're coming to the island they're coming to the you know, where are all the Apello and Akuli? You know, they're up against the island, right? They're up on the flat. All the bait fish, all the food, they're coming to the island. The island, like you say, the cross is is the fad. Yep. The fucking island's a fad. Well, oh, it yeah. Used, it used to be, right? Yep. Except for now, they got all these fences, not literal fences, but, you know. they Buoys. Like, you used to be able to get, literally, make a South Point run or make an owner run. You would all... Invariably, if I if I stay in an owner lane all day, I invariably catch three or four tunas in the lane, you know, yep. 15, 20 pound size. This is like like a bycatch, right? Because you're you're targeting ono, right? You get this tuna. Okay, well it's not a hundred pounder, but were they always yellows? Uh, a lot of times they were big eyes. They were also big eyes. Yeah, wow. Yeah, not you get a mix. Yep. Right. But the fish would come to the island, right? Now. With all this other stuff going on, you know, it, it's it's well, they're not coming to the island because they get short-circuited. Here, here's a hard question that the one that I, I I but see that that stopped about and you got to understand something. I I wrote a letter. This is probably in the nineties, mid nineties or something, to Westpac, right? <laughs> and that's a time when there was like twenty boats fishing out of Kona going to the cross. You know, Joe Marks and all, everybody, right? A lot of boats, yeah. A lot of boats. Just like, fucking it, like, an, excuse me. Fucking, I, I yeah, you don't have to stop swearing now. Yeah, but you, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? They're banging it like an old whore, right? You know what I mean? It's like, and and, and my my contention is, is I've seen, you know, I've been out there. I know what it's like out there, and I've fished out there. Yep. It, and there's a lot of juvenile fish, right? And yes. I, and, I, and I said to Dave Itano one time, was in my kitchen drinking wine, Sitting at the table with Joe, Joe and Dave and I. And I said, I, I think that's like the nursery out there or something, right? You know? 
And he went, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. He did a lot of tagging studies on the mountain, right? Right, yes. But, um, but I said, I, in my letter, I said, I used to see what, making an owner run, you know, inshore, catching tunas, you know, 15, 20 pounders. Like, commonplace. It was just like, if you're going to go ono fishing from here to Middle East, you're going to catch them three or four of those just as. Just about every day. Just a bycatch. You got a tuna. It's not what you're looking for. You got a tuna. And smaller ones back in those days, you know, you, you, know, you were looking to catch the ono because the price would be better. You take it to you take you take that that ono to the, the Huggos and get three fifty a pound back in the day, right? You right. Know? You take take a twenty pound big guy. They, they didn't want it. Right. They, they want to buy a hundred pounder, right? They want to. Want a big fish. Yeah. Right. So anyway, I, that's, that's what I'm thinking. You know, it's like the island was a, was a, then it, it's changed. You know? you know, it's hard for me to say this, but I think at some point we're going to have to admit as like, and, and, you know, and, and this is everyone, this just isn't just commercial fishermen, but everybody's probably gotten either so good or almost too good at fishing. And, uh, or at least industry-wise, in my opinion, because in a lot of cases, we are just catching fish faster than reproductive rates, right? Mm -hmm. And for some reason, like, uh, industry boards and things like that don't want to talk about it. Like, Westpac, you you know, they just gave the longline fleet more quota. They just, they, there was just a three-day meeting, and that's because they reached their quota every year, and so um, they gave them more. Now... Did they do they get their quota every year because the fishery is so good, or do they get their quota every year because they've gotten so good at it? And there's you know there's no more permits, but there's bigger boats with more gear that hold more fish. Um, is there a time in the industry where we start talking about the fact that yes, we all still want to make a living? but there's less fish in the ocean. Like, it seems taboo for some reason. Like, well, it's, it's geopolitical. The problem is, you see, all the fisheries in the United States that are under, under United States auspices are pretty much heavily regulated. Over, over, somebody's looking over your shoulder doing this and that, and they, and they don't get it right all the time. You, and you've seen this on the East Coast as well as here, right? So you've seen it from two different perspectives in the Atlantic, right? You know, what they did with the cod and everything else, right? So... The problem is, it's not so much, I mean, and pretty much, the, you know, the American fishermen will, will kowtow to the powers that be and, and try to do the best they can to comply. Now, there's always outliers that, you know, just the renegades and they'll... Every business. Yeah, every, you know, but right. basically speaking, the, the, the gen, the, they'll probably, most of the time, most of the guys will try to adhere to the rules and regulations as much as possible, right? Right. Okay. The problem is, geopolitically, you got all these emerging countries, right? And some of them, not even necessarily emerging, but, you know, you get a lot of, you know, like Korea and Japan and Taiwan and all these guys. They don't give a fuck about resources they, they, they at don't, all. They don't, they're just, they're just kill and grill, right? I mean, they kick the door jams out. They do whatever they want. They don't give a fuck, you know, and they'll... And they, they don't care about, you know, we, we, we got this thing going. There's the ICAT, you know, was it International Tuna Commission or something? Yeah. Right? It's like, they'll go, yeah, they'll go to the meeting. 
Yeah, and they'll go, oh, yeah, 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 you know, and then go right back and nothing's changed. Well, <laughs> well, right, and one of the things is that you can have all the rules you want on on paper, but if people don't comply and there's no enforcement, like even like Westpac, for example, we get all these treaties, but then these other countries, okay, we'll give them like their, their, their tonnage, right? They're, right. they're out of There's no enforcement, and if they violate those quotas we don't do anything they, there's no punishment from us right right so, so right. and that fucking product a lot of times ends up right back in our country right so it, there's currently there's almost no incentive for a lot of these places to comply because there is no enforcement and then there's no repercussion from other places well, it, it, like it, us and, and then the politicians or whoever's in charge don't have the fortitude to say this fish cannot enter our country. Well, it's even worse than that. Did you know that we have had a law that Westpac has pushed back eight fucking times that already on the books that every bit of seafood that's imported, mm-hmm. okay, is supposed to comply with uh, the same regulations as a U.S. caught fish to make it an even um, playing, field. playing field, yeah, right? So as far as like uh, threatened species, marine mammals, all the fish coming in is supposed to comply. And we all know it doesn't. They're supposed to have the same things. Right. But our government keeps giving them extensions, two years, one year, like one year. A lot of people don't know this. What I have not been able to figure out about this, okay, who is getting the kickback? Who is getting the money out of this? Because if those people are really supposed to be looking out for the fishermen and our resources' best interest, wouldn't the first thing you would do is enforce the imports that are – first of all, imports drive our whole market, right? right? They're what cripples the price. They're like everything, no matter what anyone thinks, the whole price is based around import. Who's getting the kickback? Like there has to be a kickback. Who keeps extending it? Like I, I can't believe there isn't like a bigger cry, and maybe it's because people don't know. But like somebody's getting money. Well, the problem it's is a huge, the, somebody's getting money. Will the problem is the fishermen, and it's been this way for a long, long time. The fishermen are, are too busy. They're so under the gun. They got to go out and make and catch more fish. And they got to get ready. They got to fix the boat. They don't have time to really become activated like like a social activist you know like a lot of these you know like you see school teachers right they they like some agenda whatever they, whatever it is right. right and they've got the extra time and they'll take the time to go down and make a stink i'm just using them as a mundane example right, right? but fishermen they're so busy they got to get back out there because they're under the gun because they got a boat payment coming up or something you know and they, oh, yeah. and they, they don't have time to go down there and rattle the cage i mean I I know like in some places they did like in some the guys organized in Alaska and some of the, in the in the uh, up up where you where you're from right some of these lobster guys and they they went down and well you know what the problem is with us is we compete with third world labor right. that's the bottom line uh, you know a kilo of ahi in Indonesia right now is half a cent try competing with that half a cent one of the guys that works on my boat he owns a fishing boat right. Uh, and he's got a crew. They haven't gone fishing forever. He still pays them. He's got three guys on. They can't even afford to untie it, but he has to keep paying those guys' salary every month. That's like the way they ha- do it down there. He pays the guys 
like his salary that he gets from me, like if, if right. w- let's say we don't fish, okay? Let's say we don't fish. He's actually losing money every month being here uh, because just his salary alone, he depends on the fishing bonus. Just his salary alone is, is not enough to cover his crew that he's currently got tied up hoping that things are going to turn around again right now. So he actually makes more. Why is it so cheap there? Because there's no exportation because of all the COVID stuff that's going on right now. Uh, So uh, everything, uh, the whole infrastructure has been shut down. And a lot of the stuff that was in place, like the supply line, is gone now. Because they've been shut down for so long. You mean Kowalski is going to run out of gas? What's that? Kowalski is going to run out of gas? I don't know who that is. is that... There's a guy who's gassing all the, all the fish, Bill Kowalski. Oh, oh, I don't, oh, 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 the, oh, carbon monoxide fish. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, I thought you were talking about the, well, well, no, well, so, th- I mean, this is a total side note, but, like, one of the things in Indonesia, right, their fuel is, 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 there's two tiers of fuel, or at least two, okay? And so, um, like, the general populace fuel, like, for our cars, mm-hmm. is subsidized. But business like fuel isn't. So like he can go fill up his motorcycle and it's cheap. But to go try and fill up his boat right now, the price is insane. Like it's more expensive. Like it's it's pennies on the dollar to fill up his moped, right? Right. But it, the fuel's more expensive at home for his boat than it is like here. So that's wow. one of the things he's facing too. So it's kind of crazy to think about it. But you know it. There's a lot of problems with fisheries. There's no doubt. Like, it's like there's – it's something I struggle with all the time. Like, on one hand, I love, love, love my foreign crew. And on the other hand, I'll tell everybody right now, and I tell that to them, I'm not sure they should be here. You know, like – but, like, I, the way the laws have been set up, they're here now. And so for me to go fishing all the time, I need them. Like, if I want to go fishing enough to fulfill my desire to go fishing, I need them. I tried, right. I tried to do it without them, right? I, 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 got my first, I, got my, I got my new boat, and I said, you know what? I'm going to make an honest go of going like I did in the beginning without, without foreign Pay labor. With local help. With, with local help. help, you know, like full crew, you know, share and everything. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't go enough. Um, I just couldn't go enough. I was just tied up all the time. And not that I blame people like commercial fishing's not for everybody, right. especially like what I do. It's like being gone five to seven days all oh, the time. You gotta, and, your crew has to be young and unattached. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or, 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 or like in, in the Indonesian's case, it's, you know, coming to work for me is like a high re, high paying job. It's like, you know, I don't know. I, I think, uh, it's like some kid going from high school right into the, the oil fields or something, right? I mean, comparatively. Right. You know, get some kid out of high school and he goes up to North Dakota and he's making $110,000 a year. You know, he barely made it out of high school, right? Right. And the Indonesian guy come here and make money would be like equivalent of being a millionaire back there. Oh, it's... Man, I mean, those guys are all... Like, Sooty, who's been with me for over 10 years, I mean, I don't really want to talk about his finances, but yeah. he's not far out from retiring, He's only a year older than me. And I'm like talking about retiring forever. You know, he's been doing it for like right. a little over a decade. So, well, he's... But retiring in his where his economic system works for him. Correct. Now, right. You couldn't retire here. You couldn't retire here. here. No, yeah. no, no, no. There. But, you know, like, man, if you pay, if you pay, for example, like an Indonesian guy gets 50 grand a year. That's a ton of money for them. Mm-hmm. Right. If they take home, if they take home 
Well, let's say you even take home 40 grand. That's so much money compared to the like medium middle class of being like $3,500, you know, for a year, $3,500 for like a year is median mid and class down there. So if you come here and make 40 grand, you're huge, right? You know, but 40 grand you're for a rock star. Yeah. You're, you're a rock star, but you, you come here and make 40, 50, 60 grand as a deckhand in a year here. It's not going anywhere near as far. I mean, fuck, $62,000 is considered, uh, what, what the hell they call it here? It's cost, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, it's like $62,000 in Hawaii is... Median con- income. Or, 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 or poverty line. The poverty line in the U.S. for, like, someone with, or for Hawaii, for someone with a kid, is like sixty two grand. So, like, you know, even on, like, some of the... Except for some huge outlier years, right. most deckhands, like, are, are making just at poverty line. Right? right. So... I don't know. That, that's the hard thing. Like, you know, maybe if you're living at your parents' house or something, right. you know, 50 grand. But, man, it doesn't, like, it, like you know, Hawaii is so expensive to live in. Well, I mean, uh, it's not just here because it, it, it's relative. I mean, if you went to Oklahoma City, yeah, you might be able to get a double wide somewhere out, out in the sticks 20 miles outside of town or something for whatever. But, but it's it's... It's generational. I think uh, the younger generation, a lot of them have to have to double up with their parents because, first of all, the, the housing's not available at, you know, I mean, totally reasonable, reasonable housing is not available. No. I mean, you'd want to pay. I mean, look at the look at the look at the fucking housing market out here right now. It's crazy. Right. And it, it, it who like nobody with a baseline job right now can buy a house can buy a house in Hawaii no and I think it's pretty true in New England too because you got four families that couldn't buy a house yeah together if they if they if they made a hui and put all the money together I know I mean I don't know what that looks like in the future like I mean does that does the whole American dream kind of change owning your own house or what but like yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, we're kind of getting off subject here, but not really because it's the same well, same it's, subject yeah, that everybody's got, facing we got everywhere. Back to the geopolitical thing with you know, fishing and, and why how the economics which drives what we do and what decisions we make, whether you know you're going to go fishing or not go fishing, right. or, or what price you're going to get paid for your fish when you bring them in. Well, it, and a lot of this comes back to consumer. All right, so right off the bat. And I know, like, uh, some places have tried it, like, uh, like Sack and Safe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've got a local product, a local ahi next to a frozen product, okay? One's twenty four ninety nine a pound, one's ten ninety nine a pound. The average consumer does not care enough about the feel-good story to pay that additional money. Right. As heartbreaking as that is for someone who's passionate and loves it and, like, speaks why you should be buying a local fish— Mathematically, it is proven over and over and over right. again that the consumer will keep purchasing the cheaper product. The cheaper product. Like I wish that wasn't the case, but it, but it is, you know. And so, well, not every consumer, but the large portion of them, the mass majority. Yeah, right. yeah. That and that that's the problem, you know. Like uh, that 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 that's one of the huge problems. Is there's a price point? I mean, right. I know this sounds conflicted, but what I, one thing I've always said, and I, and I believe that to this day, is that I think we should probably eat less fish 
It should cost more money. I think we should, I think we should eat less fish. It should cost more money and be more appreciated. We've gotten to the point where we expect a wild caught product to be on the shelf every day for relatively cheap. Like it's something that you can farm raise and regulate and you can't, you know, like they have different cyclic trends. They move. I, I think the reality is for sustainability in the future is that fish should be consumed less and it should be appreciated more. That's, you know, not everyone has my, 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 my point on it, but like, I mean, I think that's what really would be. I, well, it'd be it, like the golden dynamic, but it doesn't necessarily equate to reality. I mean, ever it's being not, able to be a reality. No. So you come to the point where, Fish, I mean, they, they're growing fake meat now. They, they've, they've, they've science, science has learned through uh, some sort of DNA. I've seen, I saw it on oh, the Oh, I know. I saw, I've seen they it, grow, too. They grow, they grow in meat from basically a bunch of amoebas or something in a Petri day. Actually growing fake beef, right? I know. You know, yeah, I don't no, know, I've I seen don't know, it. It just grows like like a blob or something, and then you slice it off, and here's your steak. Right. I don't I don't know how it works or what it tastes like, but I'm a little leery about eating that. I'd rather eat less of everything than eat that. Right. Personally. Right. Right. It's kind of spooky, right? I mean, you know, this guy invents this shit in a pit, petri dish, and next thing you know, it's 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 imitation beef. It's oh, yeah. not even plant based. It's actually real. It it's like you know if you got a bunch of germs and put it in and it grows how germs grow and you know it's like it's kind of like that except for they're growing flesh yeah it's kind of flesh in a laboratory and you're going to eat it i don't know about all this <laughs> well I, I mean i'd rather eat farm fish than eat that shit. Oh, no. <laughs> and i what? work i work at a fish farm now how's that <laughs> what? wait Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Man, that's... that's I'm just part-time. Part-time. I don't have anything to do with growing the fish. What do you anything. actually do at the fish farm? Well, I put two pipes together. Or if I need some wire run or if I need a trench dug or nail two boards together, just kind of like a, a glorified maintenance guy, you know. I was, I was called a hardware specialist when we, we, we got all our, our... You know those barge... I don't know if you, the barge... The barge we had out here with a, with a container on it. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, the controversial fad. Well, whatever. And yeah, then, yeah. yeah. Anyway, they, they had uh, these containers on there, which has a generator and a fish hopper and a this and that and all kinds of electronics and stuff, you know, and to um, to keep the barge in the cage going, compressor air. They can raise the lower in the cage and everything. So uh, Sean and I actually put eight of those containers together and we shipped them off. That's how I got the job with Sean. You know, you know. Sean Palmer, yeah. Yeah, yeah, anyway. So Sean and I, he got me the job. Some He knew one of the guys anyway. And so we actually put all the equipment and installed all the generators and the mixing bowls and the pumps and everything and all the wiring and all that stuff and the conduits and all that for those, the guts of those containers. Because they have what they call a C container and and an E. Basically, one, one container is where they have the, the, the power resource of two redundancy of two two generators to this, and the other one is a, a feed container that actually has pumps that bring the feed into pump and it pumps it out to the where the fish the cage where the fish are living, right? 
Huh? It's all remote. You can do it all remote control through computers and stuff. You could be in a cafe in Paris, France, and, and boot up the deal and feed the fish. And feed your fish. On your laptop. Huh. I mean, what, if they wanted to. I what, mean, what are your thoughts on fish farming, having come from a fishing background? Uh, I've never, I, I kind of followed what was happening up in Canada and British Columbia and all that with the fish, with the salmon farms. Yeah. And they're back and stuck in some fjord where the flushing, they, they weren't being, the area wasn't flushed enough. So they had all kinds of uh, uh, parasites and all kinds of degradation of the, of, the, of the water and stuff like that. And you get a quarter of a million fish living in a small area and they're all taking a dump and, you know. Even though with the tides are pretty pretty radical up there, but right. still it's not enough because they but they never really get out of the fjord, right? Right. They, you know, dump all this shit on the bottom of the fjord, and the t- tide goes out and brings it back in. Right. You know. <laughs> yeah. Twice a day for 365 days a year, right? It did create some problems, right? But what we're doing, I, I've sort of changed my outlook a little bit because the, the, this concept of guys I work for is offshore. Okay. So. The, they don't have that degradation of the environment. Number one, they don't have the uh, the uh, the infestation of uh, parasites and stuff because of the location and their system. You know how they do their deal, right? It's, and so I I I worked there for a year before I ate ate any one of those kampachi that we were growing. And when I finally had one, I said, "Damn, this is good." Oh yeah. Oh, it was good. I mean, it's. It, do the ones from the offshore farm taste different than the ones in the pens inshore? I don't know because I haven't eaten ones. I've only eaten our, our product. You I've only had, had the, their product. Oh, you've only had the offshore ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Huh. I, I, I asked one of my coworkers. It's a guy who works on well, we have, we have what they call the offshore team yep. that are divers and actually deal with the, the cage and all that shit. Yep. And I asked one of them the other day. I said this very same question because I said I've never eaten anything but our product. Right? And I love our product. Yep. So is there much difference? He says the only difference is the ones inshore seem to have less fat content. And I said, is that something to do with the temperature or something? He said he, he thinks it's uh, the feed cycle because he says we were feeding ours a little more uh, more feed than they they were feeding it. That's hmm. I don't know if that's proprietary. Maybe I'm saying too much. Maybe it's pro- I don't know, proprietary no, no. information yeah, yeah, I don't or know. something. Right? I don't know. I was just curious. Still about- in the beans, but anyway. Yeah. yeah no. I mean, I was wondering more about the fla- the flavor profile. Oh, the but I mean, fat. I mean, if there's our fat- product, our product, it's so good. I just was astounded when I first ate it. I, said, I don't believe this. I was eating sashimi. Yep. It's like whew, this is like really good stuff. Isn't it funny when you think something a certain way for so long and then you experience something where it kind of makes you change your thoughts on things. It's, it's, I'm going to be honest. My, my, my verdict is still out on that fish farm just because of the Steno problem and stuff. But from a fisherman's standpoint, oh. you know, the environmental, like to a fisherman, what's changed. But I, I, but I, but as opposed to like the, well, po- it's just another fad and you got to put it when any fad, you got to put up with the Steno's pretty much yeah. sooner or later. They, they'll give you a day off now and then, but, but on the other hand too is, if you're not catching rats, Justino's not going to grab a 150-pound ahi. No. I've never seen that happen. No. I think the breaking point's around 40 pounds. And I've never seen one. You know, they get 10, 15, 18-pounders, but I've never seen one grab a 60, 70-pounder. No. Not that there's a whole lot of Ikashibi fleet left, but some of the guys who fish Ikashibi have a huge disdain for where that one was located. 
It's right in the lane, right? It's right in the lane, yeah. 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 So, I don't know. Well, I, I can see it from it's, both sides. It's amazing. I, I just, I mean, it, it's, there's no rhyme or reason. But if you sit on the thousand, you go to the thousand, it's like, how do the fish know it's a thousand? Well, they don't, right? But I mean, you go to a thousand and boom. Right. You know? Well, what, for whatever reason, that depth line seems to work. Right. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy how consistent that is on certain things, too. You know, like there doesn't seem like there should be a reason why it works, but it does. So. I, one night I was, uh, it was back in the 80s, early 80s. 83 or 4 or something like that and uh, on the way out I caught a 605 pound marlin by myself and I got it up and it flagged another guy down they jumped on my boat they were on a big rad and about a 30 foot rad they jumped on my boat and helped me drag it onto my boat this is when I had my 26 foot dory I took it in and I called the only guy I could get to come get was, was Jack Prettyman when he had his fish house up in Kind Leo Okay. He came and picked it up, even though he knew I was going to sell it to Jerry. Right? He—that's he, how good a guy he was. You know, he said, I'll, "I'll come get it for you." And he came, got it, put it in his thing, and and uh, I don't know how. Somehow he got it. Somehow he was going to go down there anyway. Anyway, he he actually delivered it to Volcano Isle for me the next day. You know, I mean, because we were friends. He, you know, he just whatever. Right, helping you out. So I didn't get out. I was kind of like. It was right before sunset when this happened. By the time I got back out, I was kind of tired dealing with this 600-pound marlin, right? And it was Kailua Pier. He picked it up at Kailua Pier. Anyway, so I said, screw it. I'm just going to go out to the 1,000 right in front of Kaibi, which is only like two and a half, three miles out. It's not even that far out, right? Because I had caught Broadbill right in there. And uh, so I, I set the lines out and everything, and I... Worked it for an hour or two, and I was really tired. I went in my little cutty cabin in there and just went to sleep, right, you know. Okay. Next thing in a power wake up, you know, it's like maybe 40 minutes before dawn, right? I'm, That's now, pretty good nap. I'm in, <laughs> I'm in 200 fathoms in front of Kaholi Light, and I've got 60-pound big eyes. i got two on. Get them up. Send them back down. Get two more on. I got six. At just just first light over the over yeah, the ridge. They agree with at two hundred fathoms. Big eyes. Yep. In tight like that. That far in tight. But how I know they could have been swimming around the boat all night. Right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but you know, like normally, that's something you'd see offshore somewhere, right? I right. Mean, yeah. I mean. Uh, well, it's like you said, though. I mean, who's trying there? Yeah. Nobody's trying, right? Well, I mean, you know, it's just what it is. Yeah. And that was the summertime, too. I mean, that was... Normally, I used to always associate, uh, unless you were on a log or something, you know, big eyes with being more of a wintertime fish. Yep. You know, we used to get... Every once in a while in Kona, there would be a guy out there trolling along, his charter boat or something, right? And it, like this time of year. Get covered up. Just get covered up. Everything. Yeah. And you know how it is. If yep. you, had, you got dangled. If you had 20 lures out there, they all go off. Right. Right. But every lure in the thing, boom. They come in and like, whoa, man, holy shit. I had a blind strike six at a time or whatever, five at a time or whatever. Right, right. right. You know? 
It seems like they're always. It seems like it's been a while. It's, it, oh, it, I haven't heard that story in quite a while. Yeah, but they all seem to be. I, that, when you get, it's all like between eighty and hundred pounds. Usually bigger ones. Yeah. Yeah, eighty and hundred pounds. You know. Yep. Yeah. Well, the rogue ones we get trolling like in the middle of nowhere. Those are always like always the bigger ones. Yeah. Right. Those are like you know when you blast off a couple one forties or right, something. Yeah, they're right. like, where the hell do those come from? You know, right. they're always like a bigger pack. Yeah. Well, for the sure. thing that if you, the scientists say that they they stay down and they got to come up to warm up their muscles. Yep. So they're down at twelve hundred feet, and every one, two or three times, four times, whatever the cycle is, they got to come up and warm warm their muscle tissue up. That's why they come up in the thermal climb. Right. And when they come up, and if you coming by, you know if they come up, they'll feed. They're up in the upper thermal climb. There's no law that says they can't eat. Oh yeah. In, in warmer water, right? Right. So if you just happen to be when they come up. And you happen to be going by, and you got six jet heads out, and all six of them are going to go off, right? Right. Well, you know a number I see uh, repeated quite a bit is that big guys only spend 7 to 11% of their life in, like, the upper water column. Right. You know, if, if across their whole lifetime. So when you get them trolling at all, it's kind of neat. It's a pretty short window, you know? So. Well, the juveniles, I think the juvenile guys are, that's why you get so many juveniles on the cross, right? I mean, the big guys, you know? Yeah. Because I don't think they're they're quite adapt to going. Well, it's a full lifetime we're talking about. Yeah, it's across a full no, lifetime. No, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm saying I think the juveniles spend more time in the upper waters. You look just look at the well floor. around structure too, like anything like that. Yeah, they're like bigger fish as they get bigger have a tendency. Um, like big guys are really kind of neat. Like so they get to um, except for like on rare occasion. For the most part, like they break up eventually. As they get bigger, they become like lone wolves, you know. So like they go into like packs of like seven or eight, a lot of times. Except, I mean, there are there are rare occasions where you get schools of big ones, but most of the time when you find bigger ones, they're just mixed in. Do you, do you think? Uh, do you think that like that pack mentality when they're like under a dozen or something in a deal is this? That's what's left of that particular broodstock over the years of through attrition. Uh, no, I think they break off like wolf packs. I think they get to a certain size and then they kind of break off because the bigger ones kind of become their own little deal. Part of that probably has to do with sexual maturity too. Like, uh, big guys go sexually mature a lot later than say like a yellowfin, you know? So I think that has to do with it. Um, you know, I, I, I would have guessed too, like at a certain point, big, big guys eat small, big guys. So they might not be that fucking welcome at a certain point either. You know what I mean? Like, they probably get to a certain size where, like, a little big guy doesn't want to see a big, big guy. Right. You know, that, that probably is part of it as well, I would think, you know? I think. So, oh, Will, I just have to ask you one more question. Sure. I mean, I, I, I'm really appreciating. We're at two hours and 30 oh, minutes yeah. right now. And I, I, oh, man, yeah, well, it's because you're a great subject matter, you know? Uh-huh. you got so many good stories. <laughs> But one story that fascinated me last time that I really was hoping you would tell, and because I I am a uh, a big fan of Hunter S. Thompson mm-hmm. and uh, the Curse of Lono, mm-hmm. and uh, I was introduced to that book uh, later on. Mm-hmm. But you know some of the uh, you know the tales of Kona and stuff are awesome, and I know you were around during that time period. Right. I was. And if you could just tell the people at home about, like, your experiences during that time and just, yeah, I knew you had a follow-up story, too, with a friend there. I, I would love for you to share that story, if you don't mind. Well, Hunter S. Thompson, if those who don't know, is a, was an American author and correspondent. Uh, he, he actually 
would write for magazines, Rolling Stone, and a few other ones, a lot, a lot of other ones, actually. And uh, he wrote some books. And uh, if you looked at him, you wouldn't know he was crazy. He looked like an accountant. <laughs> he was like a angu- lean, angular guy, you know, uh, short hair, horn rim glasses. He looked like a CPA. He was a crazy, crazy, very talented, very talented, very intelligent, but just wild crazy. He loved drugs, cocaine, LSD, pills, whatever you had. What do you got? He'll do it all, right? Drink, alcohol. I mean, he was just nuts. I mean, and, and I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to disparage the poor man. He's no longer with us, right? Right. But, um, but he was. I mean, uh, and, and I was kind of a fan of his. Just but he's a very good author. Oh, yeah. And Great that, writer. That, that, that expression, uh, gonzo journalism, he's a, they, they, they coined that about him. Right. Because his, his style of writing was just like machine gun, rat-a-tat-tat. You know, he just, you know, his dialogue, is, you know. It's amazing. It's it just go, 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 right? You know, and, um, and you have to kind of keep up, you know what I mean? You, you read it, you know, he's like. Can I keep up with this guy, right? And uh, but he used, he came here in oh god, what year was it? In the early eighties. So nineteen eighty four marathon does that sound right? Or eighty well, six or something? No, I think it was. I'm trying uh, to think from the no, book. It was actually before that. I think it was like uh, he came. One of these magazines paid him to go cover the Honolulu marathon. Right. Yes. Yeah. So he had a buddy named Stedman, I forget his first name, John Stedman, I think, who was an artist, and he did a lot of illustrations for some of uh, Hunter S. Thompson's books. So they came together, right? And Stedman was going to do the illustrations for uh, the article, and Hunter was going to cover the article and write the article. They covered, and he, as soon as the thing was over, they came to Kona. They heard about Kona, and they came to Kona. And they rented this they called it a compound. In the book, Curse of Lona, he calls it the compound. Right. And if you go down Lee Drive, just past, if you go south, just past uh, Magic Sands, there's a little bay it's right adjacent to Lee Drive, and then you'll see some condos. Yeah, right there, mile that, marker four. Where, and they look like Polynesian roofs. You know, they got a two-story condos, little brown buildings that have the Polynesian-style roof. Just beyond that is the old Peacock Estate. And, um, and, uh, there was two houses on that and a carriage house. And the two houses were mirror images of each other. He, he rented one of those, the vacation rental. My friend Stan and his wife Marianne were the caretakers of that property, right? And in the book, in the book Curse of Lono, he talks about the sleazy caretaker and his wife. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was Stan. Anyhow, but see, while he was over here, he wanted to go fishing. Okay. Yeah. So, so he, he started fishing with a couple of guys. And he fished with uh, Jeff Fay on the Humdinger and a couple other guys. And another guy named, uh, shit, oh, God, what's the other guy's name? I know him. It's Kaiser, Steve Kaiser. Steve Kaiser. Not Steve Kaiser. One that had the Medusa. There was another Kaiser that had a, an old Ravovich like a 28-foot or 30-foot Ravovich on the other side of the harbor. Steve Kaiser, there was a Steve Kaiser that was a diver and owned, owned the Medusa, right? Okay. But this other Steve Kaiser was across there, and he, and he fished with that, on that boat, and it was, that boat was called, what the hell was that? Anyway, 
So he went to the South Point trip on that boat, and he used to fish with uh, Jeff Fay on the Humdinger. And at that time, periodically, I would now and then I'd, I'd crew for my friend who had a boat called a 31 Bertram called the Desperado, and my friend's name was Joe Augustine. He had the boat parked. His slip was right next to the Humdinger, right? So Hunter S. Thompson used to come down in the morning, jump on the boat, and there's a there's a a tackle station on the back of the humdinger right as you right between the salon and the and the deck you know yeah and he opened the top drawer and emptied his baggie in there not a baggie but like a brown bag you know like a medical bag or something uh, no no just like a, like a, you like went to longs or something they give you a bag not a big okay, like kta yeah. bag but yeah, you yeah. know and he'd empty it out into the top drawer and he'd say he announced to the world he said the drugs are in the top drawer, boys. Help yourself, right? Ah. You know, you had cocaine and pills and weed and whatever, right? You know, and they go fishing, right? And then after, and back in the day, that's when, before Huggos on the Rocks, they had the other Huggos. I mean, the, the Huggos before got Huggos, the regular Huggos, right. somehow got gentrified. And it was a lot of contractors and fishermen would go in there in the afternoon. Gentrified. What a great way to put it. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what it is now, right? right. I mean, but... Back, if you went there at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the afternoon, back in those days, half the people in there were fishermen or contractors, you know. And everybody's getting all jammed up and everything. So <laughs> but they, we go in there and sit down, and we're sitting at the table, and Hunter and the rest of those guys are in, in the very next table, right? And they had these round tables with these, I don't know, like chairs like this anyway. And they're drinking Slammers. Now, slammers, you got like a tumbler, like a short tumbler like that. Yep. And you, you put so a couple shots of tequila in there and, a, and an ounce of, of uh, club soda. Okay. And put your hand over it and slam it on the table as hard as you could, and it would fuzz up, and you got to drink it all before the fuzz goes down. It's called a slammer. Huh. And they're drinking slammer after slammer. I mean, you know, these guys are going around the table, boom, 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 you know. And Hunter Thompson's so lit up, he's got two cigarettes going at one time. He's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, totally off the, off the charts, man. Right. So, I mean, this is like, they've been going at it all day. You know, who knows how much blow he did and everything else he did. And to reach that point in the afternoon where they're drinking slammers. And he's still moving, right? Right. And uh, so in that book is sort of an expose about Conan and all the crazy stuff that went on. And... Uh, that book makes me laugh because I wish I, I hadn't been exposed to it until I'd actually lived here for a long time. And I was laughing because so much of it is like painfully accurate on right. some stuff. Like yeah, right. you're kind of like, if you didn't actually live here, you'd think some of it was bullshit. You know no, what I mean? No, no, yeah. no I, I, I'm, not in, I'm not embellishing the story one yeah. iota, believe me. Oh. Not one iota. And <clears throat> funny thing, when he finally left Kona, right? Yeah. Now, after he left is when he wrote the book Curse of, Curse of Lono, right? But when he actually left, and he left the compound and moved on, went up and back to L.A., well, who knows where he went? New York, L.A., I don't know where he went. He right. Went. Anyway, I get a call from Stan, who's a friend of mine. He says, get your ass over here. And he goes, why? He says, well, you should see what Hunter left us. I said, what do you mean? I get over there, so I go over there. And his eyes are all like this. It's like, <laughs> it's like 10 o'clock in the morning. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know. And what happened? He says, well, Marion went to clean the house, right? And Hunter never used the kitchen. Okay. Because he'd all go out. He'd go to Conan to eat. Every night. Just about every night. Yeah. 
and he became friends with Marty and, 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 and Steve Falsanello and those guys that owned Conan and stuff. He partied with those guys and all that shit. Anyway, so he says, look what, he says, she was cleaning the kitchen, and he, she knew they never used the kitchen, but she's looking, there was a wall oven. Yep. So he looked in the wall oven, and there's a plate, right? And there's like an ounce of Coke <laughs> just piled in on this dinner plate. Oh, God. And he says, come on over, you know, good time, you know, and... Uh, you know, just look at this, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, they're doing lines, right? You know? Oh, man. Oh, yeah, it's nuts. Uh, but I, I um, subsequently, I read a couple other things that he wrote, and, um, and, and I wrote, uh, I mean, I wrote, I read a book, not an autobiography, but a biography of Hunter, and it, the biography is called Hunter, Yep. for anybody's interested out there, and it was written by one of his ex-girlfriends. That knew knew the guy really well, right? And she wrote an expose on a lot of his life, and she knew a lot of background. She knew his brother and everything, and blah blah blah. And she wrote stories, and she actually went and, and interviewed people that rubbed elbows with him, or knew him, you know, had business dealings with him, or you know, other writers or people, this, that, and the other thing. And all these people had stories about their experience with Hunter. And I had this book, and the book is called Hunter. Okay. And I had this book, and I, I could only read a chapter a night because his exploits would wear me out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because I get involved. When I read, I get involved, you know, and I, right. go, I, I get like, I'm almost living it, you know. Right. But I could only take a chapter a night because I go, this guy wears me out. Right, right. He's they, they doing too much. I, I, you know, I can't even picture myself doing the crap he's doing, right? And one of the one of the uh, excerpts from that book was Rolling Stone or somebody sent him to Vietnam during the last you know couple of years of Vietnam deal, right? And he was going to do his stint as a war correspondent, right? So he's in some hotel in Saigon or something, right? And he's drinking at the bar, and he meets these other war cars, like bona fide war correspondents, real guys, not. You know, Hunter Thompson, right? right, they, right. they knew who he was. They knew his reputation. Right? right. And he says, yeah, I want to go out with you guys in the morning. And they said, well, okay, Hunter, here's the deal. You be down here at 6 o'clock in the morning and be ready to go. If you're not here at 6, we're leaving without you. We're going to go out into the hinterland where they're actually shooting, right? Okay. So they're down there about 5 minutes to 6. Well, this, this guy's not going to show up, right? You know, he's not going to come down. Here he comes. He's got an Aloha shirt on. Duh. It, shorts. Bermuda shorts, flip-flops. He's got this little hat on, and he always smoked a cigarette with a cigarette holder. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And well, he's always like, you know, and and he's dragging a cooler full of beer, iced-down beer. Now, he's going out to do war correspondence. They're going out in the battlefield. Right. Right, you know, some rice patty or something. And he's acting like he's going on a picnic, you know what I mean? Yeah. They said, oh, look at this guy. Anyway, they take him out there, right? And... uh they get out there, and there's a firefight erupts and everything, and everybody's hunkered down, and they're shooting back and forth and everything. And he gets up and starts walking around like he's a director in a movie. It's like Cecil B. DeMille making a war movie or something. He's walking around, smoking his cigarette, like observing everything. Like, <laughs> like he's totally oblivious that there's fucking bullets flying around, right? And he says it was the damnedest thing they've ever seen, you know? And it's, it's, he didn't get shot, nothing. He just went with an Aloha shirt, a loud 
pink and blue and yellow aloha shirt. You know, like, no more camouflage. And he was sticking out like a parrot, right? And he got away with it. Unreal. Yeah. And uh, the other one, uh, the other quick one that, I, that I'll never forget reading. It, so that another guy was telling, oh, George McGovern that ran for president. One, yep. Remember? I don't, you may not remember him, but anyway. But I know who he is. Yeah. Anyway, he ran for president, right? So they had this, uh, he went to some hotel where they're having a nat- the Democratic convention. Okay. And McGovern was there. So he somehow got uh, and called uh, the PR guy for McGovern. said, I would like to have an interview with McGovern, right? And I'm going to make an article. Yep. So he said, okay, Hunter. He says, um, can you meet us for dinner in the rest in the you know the dining room of the hotel at six o'clock or something, right? So he goes down and he sits down and shakes his hand and everything. So it's the PR guy from McGovern, McGovern and Hunter, three of them at the table. He says, uh, the waiter comes up. He says, "Would you gentlemen like a drink before dinner?" And Hunter says, "I want uh, a scotch and water." a margarita, and two bottles of some kind of beer. I forget what kind. Two bottles of Heineken or something. Yeah. And he says, sir, he says, that's four drinks. He says, there's only three at the table. He says, that's for me. I don't know what these other motherfuckers are drinking. Duh. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, it's McGovern, the presidential candidate. He calls him a motherfucker. motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was like, this is nuts. And, and George McGovern, actually, that was his story of Hunter Thompson, told to the gal that wrote the book. Amazing. McGovern recounted that actually happened. Uh, that's, how, that's how a wild man he was. National treasure on some levels, huh? Well, I mean, uh, uh, sort of the seedy side of our culture. I mean, yeah. I mean it's whatever. Yeah. Amazing, man. Amazing. You wouldn't want your daughter to get hooked up with him, right? I mean, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck no. Man, you have had an amazing career here on the Kona Coast, and you have told us some amazing stories. Are there any stories before you go that you'd like to share? Like anything that really uh, is really important that gets passed along, something that uh, you recall from your life that or something that happened in your fishing career that a memory or a story you want to make sure that it doesn't get lost to time. There, there any story like that you want to share? Well, it's a lot of stories, a lot of stories. I just, um, uh, I got, without getting too crazy, I've got a firm belief that I've always had somebody watching over me, you know, like some kind of supernatural, like an angel or something, you know, whatever. And I was, uh, at South Point one time by myself, Ikushibi fishing off the point. I mean, you know, like four miles off the point okay. by myself. And uh, I don't know, sometime around maybe 11, I decided uh, I, I, needed to lay, I needed to get some sleep. I've been up all day. I needed to get at least three hours sleep or something. So I set my little alarm, you know, like for 4 a.m. to get the morning rush. You know, I make up, chain, make sure I got fresh baits and start hammering the Apollo again and all that, right? And uh, so I... Somewhere in the evening, I went in the cabin, man. I was out, man. I was like, you know how you get to deep sleep? And I had this uh, 
was saying something. Get up. Get up. Get out on deck. I'm alone on the boat, right? Get out on deck. And what the heck? And I, I climb out on the deck. I'm looking around, and I look up. And in front of me, there's a red and a green light coming at me. But it's up high. It's up big. Like 20 feet up. With a friggin' freighter. I mean, coming dead ass for, for me. And I'm in a 26-foot wooden boat. You know, not much of a radar target. You know what I mean? Right, totally. And uh, I look at this. And I, it was coming. And it, it, it was cooking along pretty good, you know? Right. And I did. So I started my engine and started tripping my chute in reverse. Trip the chute and get it in the, in the boat. You know, get everything up and get... And I got everything up and got out of the way and went off to the side. And that thing passed me about 60, 70 yards. Wow. That's how close it was. And uh, I, said, I got somebody looking at I mean, I, if I slept through that, I mean, I, well, that thing. <laughs> you wouldn't and, have woken up for and, that one. And, and I know from my time on that victory ship that ain't nobody watching. They're not going to see me. Right. And they won't even hear me. Right. That 500-foot ship doing 20 knots would ground me up to, like, toothpicks or, you know what I mean? It would just, they wouldn't even know. Yeah. Hey, boss, I think we hit something. Ah, it must be a log out there. Would you even know? Would, like, you think he'd even, you think they'd even feel it, like, at all? I mean, they, they set up percussion grenades around but, the fucking ship, Well, 500-, right? 500, 600-foot ship doing 20 knots. Doesn't even feel it. I mean, they, they probably hit logs all the time. They probably hit logs out of the Pacific Northwest that are six feet in diameter and they don't even know about it. Yeah, all the time. I've, se- I've seen, uh, you ever seen any they of those? They probably get rolled back by the prop and those props just snap them in half like rotten wood. Uh, have you ever seen those pictures of like when a, like a ship comes in with a bulbous bow and they've got a dead whale on the front of the ship? And no, they I've didn't, never seen and that. They, oh, yeah, it. if you Google it, they're like, if you Google like dead whale ship, there's pictures on the internet of uh, like whales that right. get hit by these freighters and they don't even know they have it and they've got a fucking whale stuck up on the, uh, bulbous. On the bulbous bow of the ship. So, yeah. yeah, they're not feeling you on your boat. No. No, no they chewed me up and spit me out. Yeah. No. That's, that's, um, that, that was like, that got my attention, you know. Ooh. Oh. Anyway. That's a pretty crazy story, man. Yeah. Glad you're here today. I'm glad I, I lived through it. Yeah, me too. Me too, and man. I, you, you think about it. The first time I went to South Point on my skiff, I had a 70-horsepower Johnson, right? Yep. I, I upgraded from the 50 I originally had. No back, no kicker. And I had an old, I don't know, it came with a boat, an old, old CB radio with three stations on it, three channels. And I, I, I launched my boat at night at KO Bay, ran down the middle of the stopped the boat, laid down on the bottom of the boat, waited for the crack of dawn, got up and had a thermos full of coffee and a peanut butter sandwich, and started trolling from middle of the to South Point. It made the owner run all the way to South Point, right? And then went off the point, out, because the water was kind of good. It wasn't totally flat, but it was, you know. And I was out off the point. Now, there's a pinnacle four miles out. You know, I don't know if you see the underwater chart yep. at the South Point. There's yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. That, that peninsula, or whatever, underwater peninsula goes out four miles right. before the, the tip of it drops, starts dropping off 80, 90, 120. Anyway, I was out there in a boat with no, no backup motor, just by myself, 
Anything can happen. If that boat, if that motor had quit, aloha. <laughs> Gone. I, I think, so, so at one phrase, one, I think the one period of my life when I was so crazy about fishing, that common sense reality of like being a prudent mariner or like, or being wise about what you're doing, that was out the window, man. I want to catch some fish. I mean, that was the paramount thing. I didn't give a shit. You know, I didn't think about what would happen, this and that, what could happen. I look back sometimes in the evening, I start thinking about those old days and looking back and going like, holy shit, I was out on a limb, man. Anything could have happened. I, you know, somehow it didn't. Man, yeah. Anything for fish, right? That was the primary objective. All other considerations weren't even... Didn't think about what could happen. <laughs> Any regrets? Uh, the Just, one that got away. Oh, do you have one that oh, got they away? Oh, I got a plenty. They all got ah, plenty of them. Ah, oh, yeah. Two, some of the two-legged ones and some of those fi fishy ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we all got a few of those on yeah. land off, on <laughs> yeah. land and yeah. offshore, yeah. yeah. Well, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. Would you have done it any different way if you could do it again? Oh, there's some women I wouldn't even talk to now. <laughs> uh, oh, no. Fuck. Run as fast as you can. Oh, <laughs> shit. Well, I was talking about the, the fish. Yeah, I, I was talking about the fish, but, anything, but yeah. I can relate to that as well. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> Knowing what you know now. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh. You ever think about how many more fish you'd catch if you never had a penis? I think about that sometimes. Think of like, just oh, like, man. if you didn't have that penis to get you in so much trouble, think like, how many more fish you would have caught. What are you talking about? Leaving a, leaving a bite just to come in and get laid or something or what? No. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I know what you're saying. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, come yeah. on. You know, like, yeah, exactly. I don't, th I can't, well, to be fair though, I can't say that I've ever actually left a good bite for a chick. Like I, I mean, I've run late to like, Oh yeah, the fucking boat's broken. <laughs> like whatever, like. But you know what I mean. Like, there's been times where, like, I, I I don't know. I just think about like sometimes like where I would have like I would have fished more, or the nights I would have gone ikashibi, or I mean I don't know. I I personally backburnered. I I personally backburnered some it, fishing for you, for women. It, like it's 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 a it's um. It's a dilemma that younger men go through. I mean. What I mean is, I, I went through, I mean, obviously, I, you know, you know, it's like, priority is, you know, like, I got a hot one on the line, and I want to, I, 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 it's Friday night, and I, you know, rather than extend the trip another day or two, I'll, I'll come in to be there on Friday night, or whatever. Right, I, yeah, I mean, right. I'm using that as a mundane example, yeah. but, yeah, I know what you mean, and, uh, uh, it, yeah, it could be let us, it, there, there is a house in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. <laughs> it's been the ruin of many young men. By God, I know I'm one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, I, hell yeah. So, I mean, uh, sure. I mean, it's, it's part of the deal of being a male. Yeah. Get carried away. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Any closing thoughts for future fishermen? Do your homework and... Um, I don't know. Just uh, be persistent. Do your homework. You know, and study the study what you're doing right before you do it, because the cost of everything is so high. You can't you can't afford not. You got to make it every every uh, 
Every anchovy counts. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's true, yeah. I mean, I think about that sometimes. Like, the entry into the fisheries is definitely harder now, without a doubt. I don't, the, I don't know how they do it. I, I, like I said, running a charter boat. Now, I'm out there getting paid, right? Right. And I watch these guys when I go by the, whatever, go by, say, the fish fat or go by Otec or whatever, sea buoy. And I see these guys out, and then I look at their rig, and they got some pretty pretty sharp boats out there and i'm wondering how in the hell i don't know if i could have paid for that boat even if the fishing was as good as it was when back in the day when it was really good you know what i mean yeah i don't know again like i don't know if that's living at mom and dad's compound or if that's just i have no idea and i'm sure that for every scenario you see there's probably probably a hundred different scenarios oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah you know yeah. i mean some of it they got a, like a, a old lady that's got a good job some of it, maybe they inherited some money and bought a nice boat rather than buying land or something, or they're still living in, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe their father has a coffee farm someplace and they're living in a house on the coffee farm and they got no rent. Right, right. Well, I mean, everybody else is paying $1,500 a month rent. Duh, so paying, or, or more. Or they're paying 1500 to a boat payment, right? I mean, right. they're not paying rent. Right. So yeah. they can afford to do it. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. Know. I don't know how they do it. I. I mean. I. I. Yeah. I don't know. I, I. I see it all the time where there's guys I know. I mean, I know some of the economics of fishing inshore, and I. I know that guys are way, way, way more money into their boats right. than I am into my offshore boat. Like I know for a fact. Right. There's guys that are like. You're talking about inshore boats. Yeah, I'm talking inshore boats that are like would cost probably hundred, two hundred grand more. Than what I've got into my offshore sea mountain boat, right, yeah. you know what I mean? Like easily, right. like I, I see that sometimes. Just like, wow, you know, it's a big investment, right? You know, like in 1980, when I decided to go fishing full time, Ikashibi. Once I really had a good had a good summer, 1980, a really good summer. I went, I would fished every night except for two nights, and I only went bald head one night that whole summer. One and night, I. I, I Ball had one night out of the whole summer. Wow. And I had at least a half a dozen nights where I caught 10 ahi or more. Wow. 10 ahi in a 200-pound broadbill. You know what I mean? Something yep. like that. Or 10 ahi in two broadbill. You know what I mean? It's like... Um, and But my rent... My rent was 260 a month. $260 a month. Right. I was yeah. living at Kamaiana Holly, which is a, a state-subsidized housing place by University of Nations, right next door there. I was paying two hundred and sixty dollars a month rent. What was an average ahi worth back then? Well, I had a deal with Jerry Kinney, and he told me at the beginning of the summer. He said we could do this two ways. I can pay you a flat rate, and I no questions asked. Burnt, no burnt. I don't give a shit. Just bring me the fish. We got to ice them down, but I mean, right, make, right, make right. an effort, right? You know, drag it behind your truck going <laughs> from the ramp all the way to the ice house you right, know right, right. Yeah, yeah totally yeah but uh he said I'll, I'll, i don't care how much you catch i'll pay you 80 cents a pound all summer long i don't care you bring me a thousand pounds or a hundred pounds it is tombos i'll pay you uh 80 cents all summer long broad bills two bucks wow so you didn't have to worry yep but hey Get a thousand pounds. Of what was the what was so the other what five, what what five, what, five, what, five, five ahi was a thousand pounds, eight hundred bucks. What, what, what was it, what was the other offer? So you could either take the well, eighty cents okay, or, then, or or then uh, 
the fear of the market price could fluctuate and hurt and this and that and right. all kinds of scenarios. So you could ju- you just got a flat rate. Yeah, that seems like a pretty safe well, way to go. See, but he had, he had a fillet market in in Southern California with some big uh, supermarket. He was sending fillets. Gotcha. Quarter fillets in, in an LT three. You know, like they all iced down and packed up and put in, you know, a refrigerated deal and shipped them off to some big chain and most of that shit ended up on a barbecue anyway right southern california those guys just buy those steaks and throw them on a the grill right so the color wasn't super it important wasn't, anyways it doesn't matter you know i mean it, right it, once you throw it on a grill it changes color anyhow right right it's really burnt <laughs> <laughs> oh shit well shit but, uh, you know i think that's the year that uh he was paying cannery price i think that year is when uh albacore was 1600 a Sixteen hundred a ton. Yep. So he was paying cannery price, but that was probably going to the same fillet market as probably the Broadville were. Right. It it worked out because if four or five fish, you got your thousand pounds. That's eight eight hundred dollars. I mean, honestly, that Broadville price is great. Do you know how bad the Broadville price gets sometimes? Um, like it gets super cheap still. Like. Especially when the longliners drop off. Do they, they still have longliners just targeting Broadbill? Yeah, they do, but uh, there's not that much of a fleet anymore. That Most of the guys, when they fish for it, the, like the Hawaiian swordfish fleet is as close to California as they are to uh, Why would they Hawaii. Come, why would well, they come here? Sometimes they come here because they're fishing so far up north, it's just closer to be to Hawaii. That, that they go to San Diego or something. Or, yeah, or, or yeah. San, but, San Pedro or something. But no, they still do unload. But every time I watch them unload, I can't figure out the economics of it because it's like one boat seems to do well, mm-hmm. and then a series of boats come in over and over again that get like a lousy price. And so like I, I haven't, I haven't ever really figured out why they still fish for it. I mean, they must make some money, otherwise they wouldn't keep doing it. But I mean, they routinely get like three bucks. You know, one thing they always say is that uh, the price is cheaper here because of shipping. Like the main markets are New York and Boston, right? So right off the bat, in order to compete with like Canadian fish or other U.S. caught fish, mm-hmm. they're like a dollar more a pound into shipping is one of the things they always say. But I don't know, man. I just I'm always amazed at how cheap swordfish is. It's not uncommon to see a bunch of swordfish over there that are like a buck or less. You know, I I remember. When uh, Ufa was down by um, Koala Basin, yep, they're right there next to Tuna Packers. Yep. Year, years ago, and be down there early in the morning. And I, if I was in Honolulu for some reason, I'd go over to watch the auction, watch these guys, and they had like like a sixteen or twenty foot foot uh, uh, stake side bed, a flat bed yep. truck come in from one of the long line boats, the swordfish boats, right, and loaded five deep on this set twenty foot flat bed. And uh, they're all bellied out and stuff, right? I mean, you know, they're gilded and gutted, and, you know, and you're just looking at the basically the log, right? You know, but I'm looking at those fish, and they, you know, those fish are like 25 days old, you know, and it's looking at them and going, like, fuck, I don't think I'll eat that shit, you know. I mean, it's one thing if I go out and catch a broadbill at night and it's. Yeah, a local one's definitely better. 10 hours old, right? Or one that's 20, 24 days old. Yes, or older. Some guys fish two moons now. Uh, they put they put them on salt. They'll put them on uh, saltwater ice, and they'll actually fish over two moon cycles. So they can be a swordfish can be way older than that. The bycatch that comes off those boats is so gnarly because the bycatch doesn't have the shelf life that the swordfish has. Right. 
That a lot of times the bycatch just stinks. Like it just reeks. Ugh. Like it's so bad. But the swordfish can be held in saltwater ice, so it has a much longer shelf life, mm-hmm. and uh, that stuff can cut out fine. But some of it's gross. Like no doubt. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. Well. It is what it is. Right? It is what it is. I mean, that's what happens on trip boats a lot of times. Is that you have X amount of expenses, and so you need to get past X amount of weight to pay for your bills, right? So that's a lot of guys fish until they have where they know, like the mentality, which is, I always think is a shitty mentality, is a lot of guys will fish until they know that they've got a profit, even if it's at the point of the fish not getting a good price, if yeah, you know what I mean. It's, you it's know? what they call a point of diminishing return. Yeah, 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 exactly. You reach, you reach this saturation point and anything your return is just going to get worse after a certain point yeah but but they do need x amount to cover their expenses right so the 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 bummer is is that the early on fish the price isn't good enough overall where the early on fish could justify just going in so it's kind of a funky business model really if you think about it right well 81 82 i spent the summers fishing uh, ikushibi and hilo yep and landing all my fish in uh, at Suisan. And it seemed like all summer, the price was 50 cents. And they'd take a nickel. Commission, right. 50 cents. And guys were getting like 12, 14, 15, 20 fish a night. And they get 50 cents. I said, why don't, look, why don't we all get together and everybody just catch two fish and get $2 a pound? And leave them out there for tomorrow night. But these guys wouldn't do it. It was all about the ego. They like, yeah, I get ten. I I put, you know, I got a twenty-four foot rad, and I put eight in the box, and I put thirteen on the deck. Yeah, you got fifty cents a pound for them. You just flooding your own market. Just, you know, you. But you can't get the guys. To get, you can't get them to. Yeah, you can't get everyone on board. You can't get them on board. Well, that's to this day. You still can't get guys to go. Like, there, there's always somebody that's willing to drop it. Pretty cheap, really. I mean, it's gotten a lot better. I mean, since I've been in it, it's gotten a lot better. The The floor is nowhere near as low as it used to be. Right. But, I mean, it it could go higher, in my opinion. It definitely, it definitely could go higher, but as long as someone is willing to sell a fish for next to nothing, you're going to have that problem. Like, what always blows me away, and I know it's just a marketing issue, what always blows me away is how cheap like a lot of inshore guys will sell fish like i think a lot of people have a misconception that uh the mountain boats uh aren't getting paid as much for their fish as they are for the inshore stuff i think because of the past how fish were handled and they were there was a time when that that was the case right well i i think one thing uh a quality has come way way up you know everything's gill and gutted stuff everything is like Quality has just gone, right. even in my time, has gone way up. Like we, so what, what, what's the breaking point where you, where you stop gill and gutting? Like, like 10, I gill and gut everything now. 10 pounds, whatever. I mean, Every, any, anything, every and anything. It's just proven to be that much better of a fish. I, don't, I take the guts out of no matter what size. Anything right. will keep. The guts are out, any species, um, except for opa, and not that I catch that many opa. You know, I've caught like two in the last year. Yeah, no, not even in the last multiple years. I haven't caught an opa for a while. 
Um, that's because of where you're fishing or because of where I'm fishing. Yeah. They're primarily further to the East and usually in colder water. So they're just, when you get one, it's just kind of a passerby. It's been a while. I guess I got one, uh, 2019, I think is the last time I caught one. Maybe you're you're getting on a, on a long line. Uh, Yeah. I've only, I've caught one. We caught one Ikashibi. We got one on a lead line out of buoy three. And that's the only one I've ever gotten, um, hand lining. They catch them on jigs, you know, like in other places, but uh, like on the East Coast, like those guys get them on jigs. But the only one I ever got, I got one Ikashibi at Buoy 3. It was a fucking, like the only thing we caught. It was just like sucked out there. It was a weird deal. It was just a weird deal, yeah. Um, but yeah, like what I was saying is uh, that they're, and exactly what you're saying is that the bottom line, like uh, the bottom line is just too low. Like I, I, I would think with the inshore guys too that you, They've got a day old fish and maybe it's because they have other jobs and, uh, and, and maybe it's market, like, uh, I'm amazed sometimes that they'll sell like, you know, a little fish for like under two bucks a pound or something like there's guys that are selling fish for a dollar a pound, man. Still? Road Still, side, yeah. Roadside? Well, to a roadsider that cheap, hmm. you know, like. The roadside guy puts his figures on top, right? Yeah, I mean, he adds on to whatever they've got. Roadside at least has come up. I mean, the going roadside price is three fifty a pound now. So, I mean, if you sell it yourself, that's gone up. But I know, like, uh, uh, well, what's that guy at Harlan's? The guy that uh, what tells that guy's name? He used to be partners with Harlan. Now he wrote, but pretty much roadside. Tells that guy's name. Well, Kelly's, Kelly, yeah, Kelly, Kelly yeah. is partners. Yeah, he, I mean, they sell roadside too. Like, I think they're at three fifty. Um, on Maui, I've heard it as high as five bucks now. On the roadside? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like $4 is pretty steady. I guess it was like, I talked, uh. That's whole fish too, right? That's whole fish. Yeah. Yeah. Maui can't do the volume, but their price is better. Um, and then Oahu's kind of weird. Oahu has guys that are paying a premium, like guys that have developed markets for, uh, a premium where they're paying really good money a pound to the guys. And then because of the auction and how cheap that place gets, uh, they, there's a lot of people that are still accustomed to getting fish for just like nothing. It's like, it's so roadside's really weird over there. It's like very location to location. There, there's, there's old long line fish that's cheap. And then there's local stuff where the prices come up quite a bit. Oahu's a weird island when it comes to roadside. It's a so very they, strange they market. Selling, they selling cut fish on the roadside? Some guys are licensed to cut, sell cut fish. Yeah, they have like a certified kitchen. But I'm just talking at this time. I'm just talking... Uh, I'm just talking um, whole 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 price. It's off the subject. Well, is Daryl still hanging around out there on the on the end of that pier? Daryl passed away last oh. year. Oh, okay. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. No, he he passed away last year uh, over here. Unfortunately, rest in peace. Hmm. Yep. What happened to that boat? I don't know who owns it. Gus, I I talked to Gus about it a little bit. Um, I'm not sure uh, all the legality, but. Somebody who was a business partner in some way is living on the boat. It's it, it's not uh, it's not fishing. It's still on the end of the pier. Uh, it got moved up a little bit, but there's basically like a guy living on it on the same side. Uh, it was right in the wedge in between uh, 38 and is that is it, it, it's probably where it was the last time you saw it. Yeah, you know, it, between the the rocks and the and the pier. Yes, yeah, side. yeah, in, inboard of the of the pier. Yes, yeah. No, Daryl actually passed away over here, oh. sadly. Uh, he, he was over here for a while. Gus was with him right to the end. Would he have so, cancer or something like that? Uh, he did. Yeah, I don't... 
yeah, who knows, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he did have cancer. I, I don't know how much I should be talking about his, his health or whatever. Uh, but, I, I, I yeah, no, uh, yeah. but yes, no, unfortunately, he passed away, sadly. So. Right. Well. Yeah, Jeff Hines passed away. You know that, right? I, I heard that. Man, he was fishing right to the end, huh? Right, right uh, two, about, about two weeks before he passed. That's, I mean, that's pretty what you, that's about as close as you could get. He went to the hospital. I took him to the hospital. And I, I, he actually called me up. He said, I need a big favor. I said, what's that? He says, I'm really messed up. I, gotta, I need somebody to run the boat for a couple of weeks. I need some rest. I said, okay, I got, I got time off on my job. Because I only work four hours where I work, part-time. At, at the fish farm. Yeah. yeah. And I said, I, I, could, I got lots of time on the books I could take off. I'll run the boat. So I went down and ran the boat for a couple of weeks. And then I ended up, he said, I come in and we came in. We had a three-quarter day that came in. He said, I need you to give me a ride to Kaiser. Well, I, I found him laying on the floor. He fell down and bleeding here and there and everything, you know. It took me about a half an hour to get him up and out the door. Oh, man. And I ended up taking him to the hospital, right? And uh, he never came out. I called after he was in the hospital. I took him to the hospital, and I, I called his. Uh, so I actually took him to Kaiser first. Got him to Kaiser. He made his appointment, and they they had his blood pressure was so low. They had to give him two IVs. And it, when he first went in there, his, his his blood pressure was seventy over thirty. Whoa! That's barely, barely That's barely barely, barely alive. Right. And they gave him two units of IV and got it up to 90 over 45 or something. And they said, take him to the hospital. So I took drove him to the hospital and then uh, he went in. That was it. I called, his, I called his daughter, one of his daughters. His daughters are named Linda and Sue, right? You know, Linda Sue, right? Linda Sue, right, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but anyway, I called the one that I knew I had met before. And uh, I called her up and said, you better get over here. Your dad's really so she dropped everything and flew over. Stayed up in the room with him. He was in a private room. She got here and saw what was going on. She called her brother and sister, and they came over and they they were over here a week. And he, they were all in the room when he passed on. Wow. Yeah. Heavy. Yeah. Heavy. Yeah. So. Heavy. Well, he was an interesting character, wasn't he? He that, was. That, that guy was a salty dog. He was definition of a salty dog captain blood and guts captain blood and guts <laughs> how old was he 83 oh no no he he uh, or, was going to turn 81 he was going to oh. turn 81 in in january 81 yeah but he fished basically right, basically up to the very end like very last few days yeah, yeah I mean, well two weeks last I mean, two weeks yeah but he he could that when i went and got him off the floor at his place yep there's no way he was ever going to get back on that boat from i could just tell like the last day, I mean, I, I mean, that, he was in bad shape. I mean, his energy level, everything was just, you know, you know, like it's like one of those light bulbs on a rheostat. You know, you turn it down, you turn it down, and just each day was just going before down. you get to the point where you click and you got nothing. Boom. Ah, oh, man, right? man, there's so many legendary stories about him. He would be like a whole another great podcast, really. <laughs> well, uh, well. Yeah. yeah, he's uh, well. I mean, a lot of guys didn't, you know, didn't really like him for one reason or the other, just because of his personality or whatever, and always kind of had like a chip on his shoulder to all the, 
you know, used to call them the big boys, you know, like Marlon Parker, oh, no, big boys, you know, they're, they're full of shit, you know, I mean, they, they keep on saying they, they tagged and released, but I don't believe a word of it, you know, it's probably a hundred pounder, you know, they call, nah. they call it a 500 pounder, and on, you know, on and on and on. I said, don't worry about that stuff, Jack, don't worry about that, you know, I mean, let it go. Yeah. Let it go, you know. Well, I mean, he was old school. I mean, I, it was interesting because he was tagging fish at the end, but man, he killed pretty much everything. Everything. For his whole career, right? Like, I mean, I, I, I crewed for him on and off over the years, just different times. Yep. I was in between things, and he, he needed somebody, and I said, what the hell? Because I always paid, he always paid cash. I always paid cash. And you really want the tax, you really want the IRS to hunt you down after this uh, podcast, don't you? Oh, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was all cash, man. I mean, it was, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, no. and he never took credit cards, so all his money was cash. Right. I mean. Yeah, no, I, I know. I can actually remember him offering me a job. And he's like, and that's exactly how he said it. He said, it's all cash money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so. <laughs> but, so, I mean, but I had days I was embarrassed because we just killed so many damn, I mean, come in with like three or four marlin, right? And killed every one of them motherfuckers, you know. And oh, yeah, yeah. Like a, he, I mean, he was a great fisherman. Stack them up on a deck, you know, and get them off there. That's when they used to pull them off the, the Flying seafood used to take them off the back of the boat, right? You know, right there. Yeah. They had, that was pretty crypt when you come in and they they got the flying right there. And they got junk. They'd pay you junk. Right? Yeah. But it didn't matter. You didn't care. Because yeah, they had that guy named Igor there. Remember? I don't I don't remember what his real name was, but you remember the guy? Like, yeah. he, he was like the hunchback. They called Igor. Take your marlin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal. Uh, it was brutal, right? You know, uh, but, but if you were running a charter, like, you didn't care. You just want to get the fucking thing off the boat. So you could drink some beer and harness the boat off and go home and start it off again, right? Right. It's like, okay, well, you're not really care about the price too much because everybody say, well, they rip you off, they don't pay the top dollar and all that stuff. But if you're running the charter, you've already been paid. Yeah. And then, and then. Well, there's something to be said for the convenience of offloading and being done with it. Big, big time. Yeah. Big time. You know, just drop it off and get rid of it. Right. There's a lot to be said for that. And you go by volume. Right. Cut more. But I'll tell you what, though, that place stank all the time, man. That was the worst smelling fish house. It really was, man. That fucking place reeked. I can still, I can almost smell it now. Like, it was bad. Do you remember that? They had, yeah, I do, but I well, get, do you one worse than that? <laughs> Jerry Kinney ran this place called Volcano Isle. Yeah. And he had an acre of land there where the Toyota dealership is now. Right. And in a cinder block building that had a big ice machine. Like two or three ice machines dropped five thousand pounds of you know, twenty-four hours or something like that. Right. And a big room, and then a freezer room, right? Big walk-in fish room, all refrigerated blowers and everything, right? And uh, and then parking all the way around. You could drive all the way. It was in the center. The building was in the center, and you could park. And they used to rent stalls out. You park your rad or park your skiff or whatever. And a lot of the guys just parked their boats right because one-stop shopping. You had you had a fuel pump there. Fill up your boat, park your boat, unload your boat, put ice, get forklift come out, put eight bags of ice on your boat for you, you know, boom, boom, boom. Dollar a quarter of a bag. It's twelve fifty at the harbor right now for a bag of ice. Oh yeah, well, don't even get me started on the ice subject. Oh man. So, <laughs> but it was like dollar and a quarter a bag, right? Anyway, so when Jerry retired, Suison bought him out, right? Okay. And they started running the same operation, literally the same operation out of the same place. And one summer, I'm trying to remember the year now, like 83, 84, 
1984. There was so much fish, and they couldn't figure out how to get rid of the fish. They, they were stuck, because they were catching fish in Hilo, too. They couldn't just ship them over to Hilo. And they were, what are we going to do with all these marlin? Guys were catching three or four marlin a day, plus charter boats, plus the skiffs and everything. They had marlin stacked up in that room. Now, the eyes, they could slip out the door pretty good. But, yeah. but they had so many fucking marlin, they had no idea to do what to do with them. And they were actually four deep in that refrigerated room. Wow. And stayed there. As a matter of fact, I know it was 84 because that's the year I caught that. I told you I caught that 600-pounder. Yeah. And, uh, and Jack Prettyman delivered it for me down there. Right. And so I went in there and dragged that fish out of there. I know what I did. I, says, I, saw when it, I went in there and saw what was happening. And, and Ricky, there's a guy named... Microphone. Sorry. I'm losing you. Oh, there was a guy named Ricky Denise that ran that ran that operation for Suisan. Yeah. And I went in and he was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he was like perplexed, right? I got this, they're four deep in a room. I, and I got more coming in today. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So I said, that was the morning after I caught that six. I said, oh, I'm with, Ricky, I'm going to take my fish back. He says, he said, yeah, take it out of here. I don't care. So I went over there. I literally went over there where the University of Nations is. Yep. And donated that fish. Oh, good. I just take this fish. It's just going to rot. But the next day I went in there and it, the, they, they, the, the bacterial rate kicked off in that refrigerator room. And it was terrible. They end up taking truckloads and truckloads to the dump. God, what a fucking shame, huh? Well, when Jerry used to get stuck with that, when, it, when the marlin bite was really on, like during a billfish tournament or something, yeah. he would flay them out. Fillet big, big slabs like this, and put wax paper over them, and it's like stacked up, yeah, like ten long logs of fillets on a pallet, and run it back in the freezer, and he'd freeze it, okay, and he'd freeze five tons, wow, of marlin fillets during the summer when the bite was really on, the price was nothing, yep, and then frozen he'd ship all that to the fish cake factory in honolulu and they, they'd pay him whatever whatever you know and he'd make out wow you know so he'd pay the fishermen 10 15 20 cents a pound and then freeze the fillets and they like 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 later in the year we'd get like a buck a pound he'd ship the frozen fillets to you know put them in a deal and ship them over to honolulu right wow fish cake factory and they grind them up and put this make whatever they do to make fish cake you know japanese fish cake right God, that's was. I mean, when did people start saying, "Okay, enough is enough"? When did we see catch and release really start? I think that about the '80s, right about along that time. I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, and they started doing it like you know. I mean, because there's only even when I got here, there was still quite a bit of killing. It's gotten less and less over right. the years, right? So like, but who, was it like a big deal? Like when someone let the first one go, or like. No, because a lot of the guys that started were like, um, you know, guys like Marlon Parker and all the guys, you know, kind of like they, they, they were, they were already making enough money with their charter fees. Right. They, they weren't the bottom feeders, right? They, they were the guys that they already got enough. You know, in other words, their charter fees, they made enough money and they went in tournaments and they, whatever they had some guy buying them a big fancy boat and all that shit. So the money, the, the fish money part for Marlin... Wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't a bag, And it also, it's your stature that, you know, like, well, I'm not going to be involved in it. I'm right, right, right. Hands off, right? Well, 
Well, you've probably seen it too. Like fish money is a weird thing on charter boats around here anyways, because sometimes you're better off letting the fish go and you get more money on your tips because there's sometimes there can be this really weird they, dynamic. They don't like killing. Well, people don't like killing them or they think like they think you're getting so much more money for the fish than you actually are. Where you best would have been like better off just letting them go. Like yeah, I, yeah, I get a hundred dollars for a marlin. Yeah, right? you might as well get a big tip. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think I've seen. I mean, I've, I've seen it every direction. Right. Like, but I mean, obviously, the best case scenario is when you could sell it and you got the big tip. But that and you got the mount. And, oh well, and then you got the mount. Of course, the mount's well, the, the big. last marlin we put on that boat when I was running it for Jeff a couple weeks ago. Got the mount. Mount of the fish. My commission alone, my share of the commission alone was like 445 bucks. And we sold the fish for 200 cash, some guy behind the boat with a pickup truck. Right. You know, just don't have to drive it anywhere. Just take, take here, just roll it down the, roll it down the end there, pull it off, put it in the truck, and here's the $200 and boom. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, well, I mean, uh, the mount thing is such a weird thing, right? Like, uh, it's another whole issue. Oh, man. Well, you brought it up, and I'm not going to stop now. Like, uh, the mount thing is such a crazy experience because, like, uh, well, believe it or not, I actually have a mount from my first sailfish, like, right, in sure. Key West. And now I look back, and I know exactly how the process works, and I think, huh, interesting. Like, the guy that, uh, that sold us the mount, I mean, he used every lie that – that uh, that the not straightforward uh, guys use like the like the ones that are like embellishing or just like straight up uh, right. yeah oh man like looking back now like I, he used every every con there is to get that mount and we and we just like oh yeah oh yeah it's really the real bill oh yeah yeah it's really the real fins like yeah da, 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 da. I mean it's a fiberglass mount so well, like. I mean, do, do you think I haven't sold a mountain years, right? I haven't been part of a mountain years, mostly because I'm commercial fishing or well, the people I, I, I take I, out. I had nothing to do with it. The, the, the kid Sawyer. I don't know if you knew Sawyer or not. I, I do know him. Yeah, and he he he's good at selling mounts. I, and but he starts off, and, and and I just let him do it. it and I, I personally, it's like when I had the dragon. Yeah. I didn't push him. If they push me for a mount, and they push, they hey, I really want to do this. I want, then I would do it. Right. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't suggest it. I wouldn't, i tell them it's a replica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said the replicas are better than the originals. They'll last five times longer. Which is true. Yeah. I mean, the mounts are awesome. Don't get me wrong. I, I mean, the, the mounts are awesome. I, I, I never pushed them because I didn't want to do a ration of bullshit. Yeah. You know what I mean? I wanted my reputation to, I mean, I did, I did, I personally mounted bills. I did a lot of bills. Probably did a 150 bills over the years. Mount the bills. Right, right. Those are awesome. The real bills. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, you actually did. Well, that's a different thing. Yeah. Th that's you're really getting the, bill. the legitimate bill. Those are awesome. Right. Like, I, I know. those are Diamond Dave's got some great ones in the other room, like some right. awesome bill mounts. And, uh, yeah, those are great. But I think, like, a lot of people, and maybe some people that are listening don't even know what I'm alluding to, but, like, there's a big part of the sport business where you're um, – you know, you sell a bill or you sell, sell a mount and you get a commission. And like what a lot of people don't realize is that that commission can be, you know, 50% of the total sale. So yeah, yeah. like the, you know, and then where 
the taxidermy company makes their real money is on shipping. And yeah. like a lot of people don't don't read. Yeah, they don't they, they, don't, they paying, don't they don't read the fucking fine print. They're paying $1400 for a crate. Right. A, a, a cardboard box with like have you seen like some of them like I can kind of understand why people get pissed off. Like some of like the crating fee will show up and it's a uh the it, it it's it's cardboard with wire ties to it or like a fucking like you know like 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 twisted on kind of like if you look at it and you're like how is that but because if you read the fine print on a lot of them right it will say that the um the mount can be uh up to 50 percent uh shipping can be up to 50 percent of of the mount cost right well fuck dude some of those big marlin mounts are thousands of dollars so like Right. You know, you get like a fucking $5,000 mount and then you get hit with $2,500 with shipping or something. And it's a fucking piece of cardboard. You can kind of understand where people are like, what? You know, like what just happened there? You know what I mean? Well, yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I, I will say what's over the, the real years, difference between a Buick and a Chevy. What is it? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> a little signia here and maybe a little yeah. high, higher higher price leather over here and a little of this over there and basically it's the same damn engine block and the same door handle and everything else you right know? right well see i actually want some mounts for around my house and uh i i my dad had contacted me he's got a, a friend who's trying to sell a few right now and um they're not the best mounts you know how some of them don't have like a good eye and the eye is like so important on the whole thing but the bummer is and i haven't seen what she she wants for a price on them yet but like you know what happens so often is that people that paid for them retail like they don't realize like you know it's hard to recoup a lot of that because 50 percent was a commission and probably 25 percent of that was shipping so what's the real value what's the real resale value of that item when once you eliminate that you know you know what i mean so hopefully she's not gonna get stuck i would like them they're, they're not the best mounts but they're they would look okay around here she, what, what are they on marlin or uh one's a stripey one's a spearfish and one's an ono mm-hmm. i guess she bought them for an x and now she's over the x well she doesn't want to look at the fucking things anymore i guess they remind her of the x or what, something are they on the east coast or something no no they're here oh they're here so like i want to I, I want them like but i I also just don't want them like see the wall you're up against there. I've been yeah. saving that wall for a real big one for a long time. Like I, I want to put a slob on the wall, not like a, not like just the fucking little one, like a proper right. big one. But I'd also like to be able to get it at like, you know, not 10 grand delivered. So oh, yeah. yeah, you know, that's kind of the, one of these days, one of these days, you know what happened two times I I've had like dream mounts offered to me when I didn't own a house. I had nowhere to put them, and I'm like, well, fuck, what am I going to do? Move this from, like, boat to boat? And now... Since Rent I, storage space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so you're going to pay all that money? Like, God, a storage unit's fucking ridiculous these days, too. So now that I have this dream wall for my big mount, I haven't been offered any. And It'll I, come. Yeah, I look once in a while, you know? I look once in a while. I'd love to have a big mount right there, like a proper big one, you know? Like, you're talking five or six? Or oh, something? bigger, man. It's got to be fucking like a real... Like, well, you got, you got a pretty good wall here. Yeah, I mean, I've been saving that. I've been saving that wall for... I want, I want like a proper big one. Like, I, I've been saving that one for a big one. I think it would look good there. Yeah, we got the space. Yeah, decorated an early fish. It would go with the rest of the motif. I can see a nice 50-pound owner right above the window. Well, there. yeah, I was thinking that too. I Actually, that, that's where I thought... that of, of the mounts this woman has, those are the nicest ones she's got, so... 
For sure. Yeah. Well. All right. You're the man, dude. Well, thank you. You are the absolute man, and uh, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute honor, and uh, who knows? Maybe we'll even get you back in here again. Um, I don't know. I might, run out of, might have run out of stories. I, I doubt know. you ran out of stories. <laughs> I'll tell you, what I really like about this podcast is you went to uh, some places I didn't know. Went deep into the well. Yeah, man. That's the, that's the stuff people love. I love it. So uh, thanks again, man. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much, buddy. You're welcome. Certainly All right, welcome. brother. Yeah, bye. Aloha. Okay. Oh, man. Well. So what's the next process? What do you do from there? Well, first I should technically hit end. <laughs> oh. Oh. Well, I'm going to end it. So thanks again, guys. Yeah. Okay, so now it will take a little bit to... Uh, that will take a little bit to um, upload. So now I save it in the audio files that has been. So that is already up live. Okay. Now I will.